typical Hallmark Channel crap. And was it funny? Please. I don't understand why people love this fucking film, but they did. What's your take? I love this movie. What are you, fucking crazy? Really? Are you fucking nuts? Are you serious? <laughs> I love this movie. Wow, you got some schmaltz in you, man. <laughs> are you... Schmaltz in your soul. <laughs> are you nuts? This is a great film. This is like, I, I was about to say all kinds of cool shit. I'm sorry, like, man. I'm darker than this you. This is terrible. <laughs> Come on, man. Listening to Weird Scenes Inside the Goldmine, your essential guide to all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment. Tonight, Richard Benjamin on the new and improved Third Eye Cinema Weird Scenes Network, now on Podbean. Welcome to the now seventh episode of the twelfth scene of Weirds Inside the Goldmine. You're essentially guide to all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment. Drop in for a spell and join me, Doc Savage, and my co-host, Mr. Lewis Paul, as we discuss the beloved, the hated, the weird in the wonderful world of cult film, music, television, and more. So tonight, Richard Samuel Benjamin was born here in New York City way back in 1938 to a garment district worker. When he was off at college in Illinois, he met a nice Sicilian girl and future actress Paula Prentice, N.E.E. Ragusa, and seeing that he found a good thing, he didn't fuck around and promptly put a ring on it. Amazingly, they've remained together since well before I was born, way back in 1961. Holy shit. Now that has to be a happy marriage. She was kind of a looker too back then. His first big role was, in fact, alongside his wife in the late 60s sitcom He and She, with our pal Jack Cassidy of the Iger Sanction from our Clint Eastwood show, which landed him his first film, Goodbye Columbus. Just as often the beleaguered sidekick or bemused wingman as a comic lead, he more or less ended his on-screen career after the success of his first directorial effort, the Peter O'Toole vehicle My Favorite Year, and had a short run of well-known if not successful comedies throughout the 80s and early 90s. So, like I said, I'm Doc Savage. How are you doing, Lewis? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I'm doing well. Yeah, I, you know, way back in the day, I had I had a good friend uh, from high school that was, oh, he was really into theater. This is during our senior year. And me being the rocker, I'm like, yeah. And he goes, no, man, we, we could second act. And I'm like, what is that? Is it like a drug? <laughs> And, and what he was talking about was Broadway and Off-Broadway, because people come out for, for, you know, back in these days, they were just as expensive, you know, like you couldn't afford it then either. And people would go out for, for cigarettes. And people, everybody smoked back then, a lot, you know, before it was PC to quit or not to smoke. That's what they call now entre-oct in French. Entre-oct, yes. Yeah, people go out for the intermission, basically, and smoke. So this guy... You know, I'm like, really? You do that? He goes, oh, come with me. And and we would second act. So when they come out for the second act, I, I don't know how he figured out when that was. We go in with them and we go upstairs in the back and nobody came to, you know, like, hey, these three guys, you know, he he had another friend. He's like, hey, these three guys are sitting there. and It's like sneaking in at the movies. Everybody did that. Yeah. <laughs> And if we really liked something, we had to figure out how to be your first <laughs> which Which meant, like, oh, maybe we should pay to see this. No. Um, <laughs> so he ingratiated himself. This guy, Rick. Yeah. I don't know whatever happened to him. He ingratiated himself. He goes, let's wait wait at the stage door. I'm like, come on. I don't want... No, no, no. No, and he knew these people. And 
he really liked Richard Benjamin and Paul Apprentice. So this is like way past Westworld, so I know who, who Richard Benjamin was. This was like 77, 78, 79. Yeah, I'm already doing punk rock. <laughs> and I'm doing like all kinds of crazy shit, you know, drugs mm-hmm. and stuff. But I'm yeah. like, this is a good, this guy's a good guy. And, you know, maybe I like movies and I can't afford to go see. And I never seen Broadway shows and thank for stuff for this guy. And so uh, they, he always wanted to meet them. And so uh, they were very nice. I always remember because they did shows together. Yes. Uh, Richard Benjamin and Paula Prentice did. They performed together in the same Broadway shows. Not everyone, but, you know. No, but there's uh, a lot. They did a TV show together. They did a whole bunch of movies nice. together. And my friend one time says, oh, I love Paula Prentice. She <laughs> brought her a bouquet of flowers, and they came out one time. They come out after everybody else, and when the crowd thins down, that's how they, you know. Yep. Any any stage entrance, you know, like, they're all not going to come out right away. And he said, you got flowers? He goes, yeah, they're for Paul. I heard it was her birthday this week. He said, come back inside to the dressing room. And I have these pictures, but he had a Polaroid, this idiot friend of mine. <laughs> and they turned, like, purple over the years. Ah, oh, jeez, yeah. I do got a picture. I do have a picture of Sandy Dennis, too. We had, oh, nice. Same thing with Sandy Dennis. I'm like, so here's the flowers my friend bought. They're on Paula Prentice dressing room. And I have to look for this. I, I, I'll see if I can find it. Yeah, I'd love to see this. Yeah, so it's... it's we can put it up for the show. <laughs> yeah, Richard Benjamin and Paula Prentice. You know, we took a couple of pictures of them. We took a couple of pictures together. And I'm like, oh, that's nice. Look at yeah. that. That's different. I remember this guy was really nice. You know, and I liked his movies. And so we did this George... I'm making the connection, folks. I'm coming around now. We did this George Siegel show not too long ago and he he was one of these actors that was different you know uh around this time period the richard benjamin um started you know goodbye columbus which a catch 22 all these movies we're going to cover and it's interesting though that not i guess mid-period he, he started doing he started going to directing Mm-hmm. And then he pretty much abandoned almost immediately, yeah, acting altogether. But I do want to, as we get along, uh, it's my intention, hopefully, to talk about some of his directing films because they're oh, yeah. actually pretty interesting. Some, of no, I did cover a lot of those. So. Yeah. Okay. Back to you. All right. So, uh, like I said, they started off. Well, okay, they were doing theater before that, but in terms of televised and film entries, they did He and She together in '67 to '68. It's a short-lived series, but apparently it was kind of like a precursor to things like Mary Tyler Moore, which were you know, a lot more realistic and um, slice of life and the way people kind of talked and interacted as opposed to if you see sitcoms from the 50s and the early 60s, they were kind of very stagey and blowsy and very fake. And all of a sudden you're getting things that are more like, I mean, I don't like it, but stuff like Friends or Seinfeld or whatever that seemed a little bit more realistic and people can relate to them. This is kind of the way this show was. I haven't seen it in years, probably decades, but I do remember seeing it once or twice. And one of the many things I liked him for, but, you know, again, there's a lot of things that I liked him for. And apparently he's a nice guy as well. So we talked about him many times over the years, just in passing. And I figured, you know what, let's, let's do this finally. Yeah. So, so his first actual movie was Goodbye Columbus. What do you look like? Well, I'm kind of dark. Uh, are you a Negro? <laughs> no, I'm a Sagittarian. So opens this box office smash. One of the highest earning films of 1969 and the debut of Ally McGraw of The Getaway from our Steve McQueen show and Convoy. Filled with exclusive new songs by the very 60s four-part harmonizing the association, their breezy yet propulsive sound opens this one on a high note. Despite somewhat off-putting visuals of a whole lot of middle-aged and geriatric folks showing way too much skin around a rich asshole private club swimming pool. 
The third person they show body parts of in close-up has more cottage cheese on their thighs than Breakstone and Friendship Darius combined. What were they thinking? Likeable if real thin Benjamin is an army vet and Rutgers grad working as a library clerk. When he finagles an invite to the club and pool from his nasty, PMS-afflicted Yvonne Craig lookalike cousin, Kay Cummings, of only four credits without note, he flirts with and finagles the phone number of the middling McGraw, who bafflingly became some sort of huge sex symbol in the subsequent decade. Don't ask me. You get the choice bit of dialogue quoted earlier. Oh, and when they do date later that evening, she wastes no time in coming out with this. What does your cousin Doris look like? Doris is dark, and she's... Is she a Negro? We don't know. That's right, folks. Golden Globe winner for the most promising newcomer in 1969. It wasn't good enough the first time. She has to use it twice inside of ten minutes. Yeesh. My parents moved to Arizona. Arizona? I didn't think anybody lived there. I mean, any Jewish people. Holy shit, who produced this? The American Nazi Party? McGraw is the whitest, most overprivileged, presumably unconscious racist ever committed to celluloid, at least as protagonist in a rom-com. Well, dramedy was more the order of the day back then, but you get the idea. And this despite her father being Jack Klugman of Hail Mafia from our Eddie Constantine show and the detective from our Frank Sinatra show. And the odd couple. A crass, blowsy new money type who punched his ticket through, get this, running a plumbing supply store. We used to have a great plumbing supply store staffed almost exclusively by amateur bodybuilders, which I was at the time as well. So we'd go over there and, you know, share tips, shoot the shit about that kind of stuff. I remember they had posters or calendars of Corey Everson hanging behind the counter. You know, it was always nice to pick up parts of when we were building the addition and reworking the house back then, because nobody there struck it rich. I mean, whoever the hell wrote this thing wasn't just a racist. They were hitting a pipe or visiting Leary and Owsley too often. <laughs> Nan Martin of Nightmare on Elm Street 3's Dream Warriors and Missing in Action 2 from a Chuck Norris show also appears as McGraw's mother, who flips out that her daughter is fucking a lower middle-class Jewish guy until Benjamin figures out the apple doesn't fall too far from the tree and tells his fuck buddy to go fuck herself from now on. Roll credits. Director Larry Pierce only had one further credit of note, the terrorists threw a two-minute warning six or seven years later, but both films seem to do well with critics and box office, so there's that. The 60s, gotta love them, huh? What's your take on this amazing film? Well, Philip Roth, who wrote the original book, uh, he was really hugely popular in the late 60s and early 70s. Uh, he wrote a number of books, I'm not going to get into that, but they, they were just popular with the teens, the middle-aged, the moms, the sons, the daughters, everybody. I kind of liked this movie when I was younger because I'm like, yeah, I get it. Go to Rutgers, probably get a, a degree in library sciences, and then you can't get a fucking job. Yep. So you become a library clerk, which doesn't pay much. But, you know, in a way, it, it's sweet. You know, you meet you meet this beautiful woman. And what I liked about the film is, yeah, it's Richard Benjamin. He's going for the gusto. He's going to try yeah. to, to – to, he's going to try to do it. You know, he's going to try to – he likes the girl. She's attractive, if thin. Um, <laughs> but no, I mean, it, it's a sweet film. Um, it's it's certainly of its time. One thing I will know, because, you know, I rewatched it for the show, is that when you think romantic comedy dramas today, they're so much different from the way they were in the, in the late 60s, early 70s. They were kind of raw. And, and sometimes you're shaking your head, you're scratching your head going, Wow, this is really biting satire too. Yep. They, yeah, they, look at the guess who's coming to dinner and all that kind yeah. of stuff. You know, I like Boysenberry. Holy shit. <laughs> yeah, it's like they really made films differently back in the day. So no, it's 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 a good first film. The next one's even weirder. <laughs> oh yeah, Catch Twenty Two. Can you ground somebody who's crazy? Of course I have to. There's a rule that says so. I'm crazy. 
Who says so? Ask anyone. They're crazy. Then why don't you ground them? Why don't they ask you to? Because they're crazy. You can't let crazy people decide whether you're crazy or not, can you? There's a catch. Catch 22. Anyone who wants to get out of combat isn't really crazy, so I can't ground them. Let me see if I get this straight. In order to be grounded, I've got to be crazy. And I must be crazy to keep flying. But if I ask to be grounded, that means I'm not crazy anymore and have to keep flying. Buck Henry, <laughs> who also wrote The Owl and the Pussycat from our George Siegel show, does his best to adapt Joseph Heller's bizarre and nihilistically absurd anti-war novel of the same name. All right, I want to get this clear. As I understand it, we're presenting these men with medals for doing a lousy job. Is that right? Director Mike Nichols was known for heavy-handed dramas like The Graduate, Carnal Knowledge, Silkwood, and Postcards from the Edge, which seems like an odd choice for an ostensible comedy, if you never had to read this rather dark and grimly philosophical book in high school, that is. But the conditions have improved tremendously over the mainland, so you won't have to have any trouble at all seeing the target. Of course, that means you'll have no trouble at all seeing you. There's a huge cast here from Alan Arkin as the distraught, disbelieving lead Yossarian to Martin Balsam of the Anderson Tapes, the Stone Killer, Mitchell, and the Sentinel from our Sean Connery, Charles Bronson, Joe Don Baker, and Satan in the 70s shows as the Republican commander who keeps exponentially upping the number of missions his crew needs to fly before they can be rotated out of active duty, Bob Balaban of Close Encounters and Altered States from our Ken Russell show, Norman Fell of Bullet, the Storm Killer, Charlie Varick from our Steve McQueen, Bronson, and Joe Don Baker shows, and Bud the Chud, not to mention the ridiculous Pat Robinson primetime special, Don't Ask Me, Ask God, Martin Sheen of our Richard Harris shows, The Cassandra Crossing, Art Garfunkel of the depressing Nicholas Rogue, Teresa Russell, Bad Timing, Essential Obsession, Orson Welles, you mean I can't shoot whoever I want to? Is that a fact? As the megalomaniac general, get back in the car, you smirking slut. You're a very weird person, Yossarian. Charles Groden of Rosemary's Baby from our Roman Polanski show. Sell out former hippie-gone Trump cultist John Voight, whose only, no- <laughs> whose only notable life accomplishment... Well done, well done. <laughs> whose only notable life accomplishment was giving the world Angelina Jolie, Benjamin's wife and frequent co-star Paul Apprentice, and Tony Perkins, who we should probably do a show on. Actually, we are going to do a show on him. We are going to do a show. Of everything from The Ravishing Idiot, Murder on the Earth Express, and The Black Hole, to Psychos 1-4, to and Crimes of Passion from our Bridget Bordeaux, Sean Connery, Jackie Bissett, and Ken Russell shows as the chaplain. I won't get into the story any further if there's anyone out there who hasn't seen the movie or read the book, but suffice to say, it's MASH or 1941 from our Donald Sutherland, Elliot Gould, and John Belushi shows done much, much better. Benjamin is the ineffably upbeat group relations officer who gives insane pep talks over the comm before every flight mission and who Wells orders shot for snarkily guffawing at one of his crazy speeches. It's not exactly funny, but a very wry, fatalistic commentary on the absurdity of the military, war, and by extension, authority figures, power structures, and modern society per se. If you haven't seen it or read the book, I highly recommend you do, but you won't likely revisit either thereafter. What's your take? It's very weird. It's very, you know, I was just saying, you know, like romantic comedy dramas. And then we mash catch 22. You wouldn't you it's, you wouldn't see this like a film again. No. Nowadays. I mean, this is pretty much an all star cast of up and comings. Uh, you mentioned Art Garfunkel from Bad Timing, <laughs> but he was actually Simon and Garfunkel. That guy. Mm-hmm. And he was pretty good. I liked his, his film roles. Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice. From, uh, we're doing Jack Nicholson as well. So he's going to yes. pop up in, in some of these things. He wasn't bad. He was a natural. But, yeah, you know, casting this thing is so wacky. <laughs> and they're all... Godzilla's attacking New Jersey. He's, he wanted to be part of the cast. Maybe he was. <laughs> 
the cast is, you know, you would laugh. Like Norman Fell, ha, Buck Henry. Buck Henry's another, you know, screenwriter, natural natural actor. He used to be in the classic Saturday Night Live, used to script some of those. Um, Buck is actually in The Man Who Fell to Earth, one of the greatest films ever made with David Bowie. Um, <laughs> one of the greatest films ever made, really. We discussed yeah. that in our Bowie show, which was... Uh, for those fallen, it was a lot of people died that year, and we dedicated a lot of that show to Bowie and his films and his music. So. Yeah, I call it one of the greatest films ever made because I never fucking – I watch it every few years, and I'm like – You still don't understand it, right? I still don't understand <laughs> it. They actually let they, – they actually show Bowie fucking the actress, and – but it's so bizarre, and it's so – it's it's – so remember, folks, if you want to show a movie that you want Mr. Lewis Paul to love, make sure that nobody can fucking understand it. <laughs> That's not true. No, I, I, I just like I watched it again like uh, a couple of months ago, just out of the blue. I'm like, oh, I have the criterion. How many versions are on this thing? Oh, God. <laughs> it's still in plastic. Yeesh. So I took it. <laughs> you know, criterion does it, these seals every so often. And they're like, oh, that's a nice seal. And then and I'm like. Oh, I like that. I like, yeah, I'll buy a couple of things. Good price. It's like, I never watch them. And Do you remember when the guy from the Strip Picks was going to put out Chimes of Midnight, the uh, Orson Welles film that Jess yeah. Franco did Second Unit on? Yeah. Somehow it's under Criterion, and they don't even mention Franco in it. I'm like, what? Apparently they had a falling out or some shit, but you can still mention him in the goddamn credits. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. Because it looks gorgeous, so you can tell that he was involved with the Second Unit stuff. Do anyway. This is a very unusual movie. It's a classic of its time. It's it's black, black. Oh yeah, cop. it's dark. It's dark, and it's it's a very good film. If if yes. you've not read the book, do so. And you're like, <laughs> yeah, and you're one of those people like I don't want to read the book, you know. And the funny thing was, right after this, all of a sudden, and probably maybe do more to the good goodbye Columbus role he had. Suddenly, Richard Benjamin appeared in a really a number of pictures that were just pretty fucking out there, like Diary of a Mad Housewife. Yes. This one actually I have to see on YouTube, so it's probably the edited version or some shit. But anyway, Diary of a Mad Housewife. You will think about whether you can swing this for what it is, and I will think about what I can and cannot take. I'm not sure if I can cope with all your emotional tantrums. A Frank Perry, whose career pinnacle appears to be delivering the Rocky Horror-esque audience participation camp favorite, Mommy Dearest, No More Wire Hangers! drops this feminist uh, comedy about a woman in a shit marriage who has an affair with another guy who treats her like shit, then gets a divorce only to be harangued for it by her group therapy support base. I joined this group with the understanding that I could get help with my very real and terrible life problems. She has a husband, a lover, and an eight-room apartment in the park. Why does she need help? I don't see the problem. Your husband works hard to support you in return for which he wants the house clean, the buttons sewn on. I mean, what's your problem? Benjamin is a whiny prick, one of those assholes who kisses up and feels the need to hobnob with the goober smoochers in hopes of, quote, mingling with the right people, unquote, and landing a better job at his firm. You know the type, golfing with the boss, stuffy dinner parties, total soulless sycophant with zero self-respect. He treats his almost as whiny, somewhat neurotic, and fairly average-looking wife, Carrie Snodgrass, of De Palma's The Fury and cheap-ass slasher trick-or-treats, like a servant talking over her, haranguing her about every stupid thing. The man is completely insufferable here. 
when he practically shoves her at famed writer Frank Langella of the 79 Dracula, Sphinx, and Eddie from our Whoopi Goldberg show, who's just as brusque and self-absorbed, but a whole hell of a lot better looking. Sorry, Richard. So after calling him a worm, seriously, that was her big insult. She used it twice. Uh, there you go, at least twice at the same party, and repeating it when she winds up at this place a few days later, they meet up a few times and fuck. To nobody's surprise, she enjoys that part of it and files for divorce. Credits literally roll on the aforementioned group bitch fest, which never seems to stop. Apparently, Neil Young was so high when he saw this, he actually liked it enough to write a song about it on his biggest-selling album, Harvest, managing to land Snodgrass thereafter and keep her for the entire first half of the decade. I don't know. This was pretty typical of soapy melodramas of the day. Early feminism and a fad for open marriages setting off a decade of divorce, even and especially among those who've been together for many a year. Understandable if everybody involved were this self-absorbed and obnoxious to each other, then unfaithful to boot. The problem is it's supposed to be funny, too. I remember my mother thought a woman, her man, and her futon was hilarious, so I guess frustrated women around the time of release must have found this one hitting home and hence some sort of belly laugh and Disney catharsis or some shit. I just found it perfectly turgid. <laughs> What's your take? Why? Well, I, I didn't find it turgid. I, I found it... <sighs> you didn't find it funny, though. <laughs> no, I didn't find it funny. I mean, well, well, I I was in a, a relationship not too long ago where, you know, my wife kind of lost her... My wife at the time kind of lost her fucking mind, started cheating, and she was frustrated. And, yeah. and I didn't do anything to cause it. She just like I'm. I'm gonna seek enjoyment elsewhere. Like you're not having a good time. Let's talk about it. Yeah. You know? like but no, we didn't talk about. It, so she was seeking. Anyway. Yeah. So <laughs> trust me, I understand this. Go ahead. You understand this, right? Yes. So so you know, again from a 1967 novel which I don't remember becoming hugely popular at the time, but probably popular enough to get greenlit as a film. It's popular enough you can still find several copies in the local library system. <laughs> okay. All right. Good. All right. So popular enough. You know, my my, my mistake. But Frank Perry, <laughs> interesting filmmaker. And, uh, you, you, you know, you, you jotted off a couple of his pictures. Yeah, Richard Benjamin's a rather unlikable. Yeah, it was weird. And And – yeah, it's kind of weird. And Frank Langella, another guy just out of acting school mm-hmm. as well, you know, looking kind of swarthy and dark. He actually looked Latino for his, in his early years. Yeah, he reminded me of Travolta in Saturday Night Fever or something with the open shirt and the dark, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He looked he looked almost Italian-Latino, like yes. a mix. Well, he is Italian, but... <laughs> he is Italian. I know Langella. I know yeah. Langella. I know. It's, it's <laughs> an interesting film not a great movie it's not one like hey we should watch this together mm-hmm. but i just want to break up <laughs> what are you telling yeah, me watching right? this <laughs> but then temperature bedroom poor guy he seemed to like get into this rut yes of doing these kind of roles like marriage of a young stockbroker yep and i wasn't able to find that one unfortunately and same with the steagle and believe it or not because this was actually a popular novel you still hear about as well Portnoy's complaint. It could not long, find long as long as you didn't say Westworld. <laughs> <laughs> no, but but those three uh, films I was not able to see. So. Uh, I'll have to cover these then. Yeah, I saw the marriage of a young stockbroker way back in the day. I just started going to movies back uh, back in this time period, '71. I was like 11, 12 years old, and uh, they would double bill movies. Like, why would he go see that? <laughs> they would double bill movies. They were like something and like the co-feature was a movie that didn't do so well first time around you know show up 
and I remember seeing this, and I, I it's funny. So, the, another crumbling marriage film. <laughs> Joanna Shimkos is in this. She was pretty popular for a while, and uh, it's it's full of oddball character actors from stage and from film, like Tiffany Bowling. You might remember from um, W. W, which was a uh, slasher kind of picture. And Adam West, yes, Batman. <laughs> Elizabeth Ashley, another Broadway veteran, off-Broadway. So anyway, Crumbling Marriage and the husband, which is Richard Benjamin, is a voyeur. You know, he's got this whole thing set up with his binoculars. You know, he's thinking like, maybe if I can have an affair, it'll spice up my marriage. No, because if you suggest it to your wife, you know what's going to happen. Mm -hmm. I wasn't sure about this picture, but I remember when I saw it back in the day, I'm like, I'm like this is kind of fucked up. Because he's suggesting these things to his wife to spice up their marriage. <clears throat> and guess what happens? Well, guys did that back then. It was weird. It was just like, oh, it's like Will Smith and uh, Angela Bassett. Oh, let's have an open marriage. And guess what happens? Who gets hurt every time? <laughs> yeah. Not Angela Bassett. Will Smith is married to, not Angela Bassett, uh, Deborah, the other one. Um, Which one? Will Smith is married to whoever he's married to. It's not Angela Bassett. Oh, okay. But you know, the thing with this movie was that <laughs> he gets his kink on. And she's enjoying fucking other guys. And then the marriage crumbles. Oh, uh, the Steagle always, they always use terrible posters for this thing. I don't know, very strange movie. So I saw this, it was on YouTube before it disappeared. Probably because it was uh, Avco Embassy Pictures. So every so often, if you look around, this thing pops up. Another movie from the strange days takes place during the Cuban Missile Crisis. I saw this a long time ago, folks. And it's about Richard Benjamin playing a professor during the Cuban Missile, Cuban Missile Crisis. He's having an existential crisis. Yes. So he travels around. The, he's, like, really smart. He has a BA, MA, PhD. And he travels around the country fucking. <laughs> Yeah, I know. The thing was, though, the the most of the women in the film were kind of older, like milfy types. Okay. You know, like you gave me shit for the uh, Mission Impossible girl. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Thank you. So we have we had already older women in this film, but you know that could have been this thing. Like I, I guess some guys would have have a crisis of whatever, and they would travel, and if they decided like I'm gonna I'm having a uh, crisis in my life, so I'm going to go across the country and fuck. Except, <laughs> he was a good-looking guy, Richard Benjamin. Yeah. Except. He was skinny with this. Yeah, no, nah, but he, he's, he had a way about him. But yeah, definitely. He's, sure. he's, 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 he's fucking milfs. And I'm, like, <laughs> I'm like, yeah, but you can also fuck. Yeah. Something better looking, something younger. <laughs> younger lady or women your own age. Yeah. Uh, there were a couple of guilt types. A very strange movie. I think one one of the, it just didn't really do well at the box office. Probably because like, what do we have here? <laughs> another Philip Roth film. Uh, sorry, another Philip Roth book. Portnoy's complaint. Very very popular. Mm -hmm. um, this is another one you didn't see. 
Unfortunately, yeah, I didn't know. Yeah, why. this was very popular movie. <laughs> it's almost like a weird comedy fantasy satire. So Benjamin played Alexander Portnoy, a Jewish man, obviously, employed as assistant commissioner of human opportunity. What the fuck is that? <laughs> so he's like overwhelmed by stuff. I, I rewatched this for the show. So he, he's overwhelmed in life. He, he can't get it together. He has lots of sexual fantasies, don't we all? <laughs> so he keeps going back to a th- psychotherapist where he you then see things take place like through his fantasies, which he tries to enact in life to various degrees of yeesh. Yeah, uh, <laughs> that's the problem with fantasies. <laughs> that's the problem with fantasies, yeah. A nice cast though here, Karen Black, Lee Grant, Jill Clayburgh. It did well at the box off, and it was liked by critics, but not as much as Goodbye Columbus, which which another Portnoy book that was turned into a uh, uh, Richard Benjamin film. This one was just kind of odd, kind of like laying around like, who are we making this for? Because, you know, by 72, 73, now the whole older mindset is changing. More younger people are going to the movies again. Brought on by... Uh, the advent of horror, uh, martial arts films, black exploitation films. Even just the auteurists, because all of a sudden the directors are no longer studio products necessarily. You right. have people that, even people I didn't particularly like, like Altman. You know, these are people that are making films because they were into films, kind of like the Cahiers de Cinema crowd. So right. you got a different audience for that because people are like, you oh, got look. a different audience for that. So, so old Hollywood making movies based on popular novels featuring well-known, attractive cast members. You just start hitting a wall. The next one he did, I really, really like. It's a personal favorite of mine. The Last of Sheila? Yes. Yeah, okay. So, comedy man Herbert Ross of The Owl and the Pussycat, Soap Dish, and Boys on the Side from our George Siegel and Whoopi Goldberg shows, directs this script from, of all people, Tony Perkins, who'll be doing yeah. the show on soon, and cheesy Broadway musical man Stephen Sondheim. The cast is definitely interesting, far more so than the film itself, actually. Lovejoy himself, Ian McShane of The Pleasure Girls from our Klaus Kinski show. Raquel Welch of Lady in Cement, Fuzz, and the Three and Four Musketeers films from our Frank Sinatra, Burt Reynolds, Oliver Reed shows. James Mason of Lolita, Cold Sweat, The Destructors, and Mandingo from our Stanley Kubrick, Charles Bronson, Michael Caine, and Blaxploitation shows. James Coburn of The Great Escape, Magnificent Seven, and Looker from our Steve McQueen, Charles Bronson, and Michael Crichton shows. And our man Flint. Well, yeah. <laughs> uh, Diane Cannon of Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice, like you mentioned before. Seamus, The Anderson Tapes, and Death Trap from our Elliot Gould, Burt Reynolds, Sean Connery, and Michael Caine shows. And bit player Yvonne Romaine of Hammer's Curse of the Werewolf and Captain Clegg. And Elvis' yeah. Double Trouble from our Hammer Films and Elvis movie shows. Did you get fixed up with one of the Go-Go Boys in there? Are you kidding me? I spent the last hour ditching guys who I thought I was offering the key to my hotel room. This highly subtextually loaded and very 70s mystery among the annoyingly privileged nouveau riche centers on a movie director who invites a club of Hollywood associates on a week-long cruise, an ongoing parlor game come LARP that extends to exotic island stopovers as well as on board his schooner. As the last time these bored déclassé faux socialites got together involved the hit-and-run death of the director's gossip columnist wife, Seriously, it's a head of hopper mystery, and it's not where the hell she got that dollar store hair and wardrobe done. 
The LARP involves each of them trying to find out the other's secrets, which are given to them individually and appear to be targeted, from middling stuff like, you are a shoplifter or informant, to nasty ones like, you are a homosexual, which was a big deal to be publicly exposed as when the film was made, and you are a child molester, which appears to refer to a nervous James Mason. Altogether, the first letter of each accusation spells the late Gossip Maven's name, Sheila. Eventually, the whole story comes out, and there are murders, cover-ups, and blackmail, ending in a quite morally gray cover-up in exchange for using the dead couple's estate to bankroll another film. Ooh, how meta. Meow. How catty. Yep, this was a seriously rainbow-flaring, fabulous affair. So maybe that bizarre screenwriting team of Perkins and Sondheim isn't so surprising after all. Xanadu and Can't Stop the Music were much more butch than this one turned out to be. As a mystery, it's far from a straightforward, easily solved drawing room affair like old folks obsess over on PBS, but it also feels more like a seedy, low-rent take on a Radley Metzger film, minus the aesthetics or kinky sex, than it ever does a mystery. The subtext is strong with this one. I mean, come on, the damn theme song is by Bette Midler. Think about it. So, what's your take? Yeah, but I still like it. I didn't say I didn't like it. I just said, it's a, wow, this is loaded. <laughs> it's loaded. It's loaded with, with all kinds of sexual subtext. And, you know, mm-hmm. Anthony Perkins, we know all about. We're going to get to Anthony one day. And Stephen Sondheim. <laughs> like, uh, what a team. Son- well, I don't know where Sondheim I don't know. But we know Anthony, <laughs> Anthony Perkins said he was, yeah, he had trouble, which is why he died of what he died of. But yeah. as a type of weirdo, fucked up mystery movie, I always liked this better than all those 70s Agatha Christie films. It's definitely kinky and weird. <laughs> it's kinky. There you go. I have spoken. I have spoken. Yep. It's kinky and weird. It's, it's the sexuality is all over the place. Um, seriously, uh, I liked it because it was kind of twisted. It was kind of dark. Mm-hmm. And 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 you know, his globe trotting like, all right, they gave this guy Herb Ross who did. You know, the guy was like, also did a lot of Broadway. I, I, I saw, like, plays directed by her. Yeah, it was a big thing for, like, decades. I'm like, I was going to ask if he was involved in Batman, but that was Stanley Ralph Ross. Maybe they were going to I'm like, you're making, like, a mystery film? All right. Yeah, uh, like, what? <laughs> yeah, what? But it, I always like this because it's, like, really interesting. Everybody's bitching, though. You know, even the guys, oh, yeah. they're, they're, like, hetero. They're bitching. That's Yuck. what I mean. It's, it's, you think it's like, oh, yeah, okay, whatever these people are in. I'm like, oh, my God, this is so catty. It's so loaded. It's like, you know, it's like you go see Can't Stop the Music with the Village People, which is probably one of the gayest movie musicals ever put out. Yeah. And it's like, it feels more butch than this. This <laughs> film is really, <laughs> it's something else. You got to see it. I mean, it's, it's a party film in a way. <laughs> what, this one? Yeah, this one. Yeah, oh, yeah, it's a party film. You know, it, it's, you know this, is, this is the kind of movie that needs to be... I don't know. We need. I you know. I should put the trailer up <laughs> <laughs> because True. it's like, have you seen this? This is so crazy, mm-hmm. and it's almost magnificent in its craziness. And it's not supposed to be a comedy. This is supposed to be like a straightforward kind of like you know drawing room no, murder mystery with a lot a of comedy. you know world travel and money and like oh my god. <laughs> I never I never saw it as a comedy. I just thought it was this biting biting bitch fest. Amongst rich people. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, it's funny that as it, as it, as it, as it went on, you know, as the movie goes on, you like you, you think. I mean, I did not get when I first saw it. I didn't figure it out. Yeah. And 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 uh, I mean, I I think it succeeds in that manner. That like, oh really? 
<laughs> yeah, but I was like, really you think of a mystery and you're thinking like, okay, this is what's going to happen and here's the red herrings and here's the whatever, figure out the plot. Mm. No, and, and I don't even know it's really about the mystery. It's just about, you know, Tony Perkins and Stephen Sondheim going like, woohoo, what can we do here? <laughs> I was really surprised to see how James Coburn ended up in, in this too. I like mm-hmm. Oh really? You're gonna play that game? That's <laughs> so true. no, it's 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 a movie I always liked, but it may not be for everybody. But that being said, yeah, it's it stands out. <laughs> That's my point. <laughs> but you, uh, Richard Benjamin, really became a huge star with Westworld. Yes, Westworld. We referenced this one in our Peter Fonda show, talking of sequel Future World, and later covered in Toto for our Michael Crichton show. But this 70s sci-fi dystopic warning hailed, like many of the films discussed here, from both Crichton's pen and his directorial aegis. Suffice to say, likable and decidedly new mannish Benjamin, and blowsy, nuts-grabbing pal James Brolin of Hotel fame, <laughs> as well as the Boston Strangler from our Tony Curtis show, The Car and the Amityville Horror, head off for a rich person's vacation on the planet Delos, where lifelike androids serve as fuck buddies, servants, and immersive role-playing in your choice of Roman Empire decadence, medieval Arthurian fantasy, or Wild West gunfighter. Naturally, the androids all turn on the guests when a virus spreads through their mainframe operating system, with the expected result on the few remaining survivors. There's the expected Crichtonian combination of fetishization and fear of technology run amok, but it's the subtext that really resonates to this day, an existential rumination on the nature of masculinity and manhood, and the cost we pay for an indulging in atavistic fantasies over more civilized behavior, something a whole fuck of a lot of people nowadays really need to face up to and reflect on, given the resurgent drive towards domestic and global fascism and oppression of the other, be said other gender, race, or belief system. On the surface, this is a very typical sci-fi dystopia. All that stuff bubbling underneath that viewers need to pay attention to and why the film is considered a classic. Oh, it's such a... You wouldn't have had... You would not have had Terminator or, or any of the other pictures that came in its wake. Hardware. <laughs> well, hardware. You know, you just a, a lot of these films, this worked. You know, Michael Crichton just really bang up job. You know, I, I'm sure his budget wasn't huge, but it was really, I read something not too long ago that Yul Brenner was having some financial difficulties. I, I not sure what, what, what the cause or the root of that was when he, he accepted for a less than a normal fee to play the gunslinger in this based on his uh, Chris from the Magnificent Seven films, his Chris character. And um, he, he's terrific. <laughs> the, the guy has very little lines, nearly steals the whole film as a robot. And, and you know, Benjamin and Brolin, they, they make a fine team. And and it's oh, yeah. funny that you, you know, I don't want to give... I hate giving away pictures, but by the end of this picture, I love the ending. It's so, mm-hmm. it's so early to mid seventies. It's so like shit. Yeah, and Benjamin to this point, okay, yes, he was in a lot of heavy drama D's, yeah. but basically this was not what you might have expected from him necessarily. Yeah. Even after something like The Last of Shield, which was just bizarre, and he really can deliver. I mean, it's surprising how good he is considering the nuances and the subtext that's going on here and that has to be put across and he really lands he hits a home run let's put it that way so. a home run yeah yeah it's like hell you know with i i applaud yeah you did a great job you did a great mm-hmm. job here interesting you will recognize some uh some familiar faces in this picture too steve franken who popped up in lots of movies dick van patten a familiar face on tv uh, major barrett 
uh, fittingly played the Madam of the Westworld Bordello. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and <laughs> you know Major Barrett's backstory, you Trekkies? Yes. Uh, yeah, okay. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's unfortunately a little too fitting. Yeah, unfortunately. Yeah, this, this was an amazing film. They actually did a sequel with, uh, with Peter Fonda. Peter Fonda. Peter. I forgot the actress. But they, uh, Blythe Danner, maybe? Maybe Blythe Danner. And they brought back Yul Brynner. It was not as successful as this. I liked it a lot, and we talked about it in our Peter Fonda yeah. show, but yeah, it's no comparison in certain respects to this one. No, no, I mean, it's it's not as good as this, but it's 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 surprisingly okay. Yeah. And then they did a um, series based on the, the Crichton idea, which has uh, apparently been on for like five or six seasons. And, oh, longer than that, I'm sorry. <laughs> it's been on HBO since 2016, and I've never wow. seen one. Um, yeah, me either. I don't have HBO. <laughs> well, Sandy Newton is in it, and I, I, I'm a, I'm well, a I big Sandy Newton fan. But uh, yeah, it's like, am I going to have ten years of this? You know, it's like it could be a film, you could remake it, but like a series, I don't know. It's like you're going to lose interest. Yeah. Next, The Sunshine Boys. Yes, The Sunshine Boys, 1975. It's very good, actually. Borscht style playwright Neil Simon, who gave us such broad comedies as Barefoot in the Park, The Out-of-Towners, and The Odd Couple, drops the script for this Herbert Ross effort, who did Last of Sheila and All in the Pussycat from our George Siegel show, where Walter Matthau from The Laughing Policeman, Taking a Pelham 123, and our Joe Don Baker show's Charlie Varick, is a washed-up geriatric vaudeville comedian who forgets his lines and is very belligerent in that patented Alta Yiddish manner. In other words, he's a real yutz. Nephew Benjamin is his long-suffering agent who tries to get him even the shittiest of jobs like the potato chip and Howard Hessman of WKRP, Americathon, and Dr. Detroit is trying to do. Tries to get him a potato chip. Here, take it, eat it. <laughs> <laughs> but the grouchy, nice, senile old bastard keeps sabotaging his efforts. When one of the major TV networks tries to get Matthau's old comedy team to reunite for a special, they're forced to contend with a long-standing rivalry and burn bridges between Matthau and former partner George Burns of Oh God from our Donald Pleasant show. Of course, they bicker even on screen, and that deal falls apart as a result, but they're ostensibly going to reconcile as they're both moving into the same retirement home. Good God, anyone who's had to deal with groups of senior citizens or even grandparents, particularly Italian or Jewish ones, has lived this shit a thousand times over. And Richard Benjamin is a saint for being so patient and indulgent with these two impossible shemils. I honestly can't see who found this funny, people who never dealt with the age before. But yeah, it was a big hit for some reason. So what's your take? I thought it was a very good movie. It's, you know, at a time, it was a play that was oddly... Not only was it very popular in 1972 on Broadway, it this thing got revived on and on and on until people I don't want to see my grandfather on stage, you know, like <laughs> until it lost favor with audiences, the theme at least. Mathel playing older than he was at the time, and George Burns playing, I guess, around his age, are a pretty good team, uh, you know. Once popular vaudeville comedy act, you know, who can't stand each other, and somebody comes along, and if you do this gig, you know, it, it'll benefit you. And, and Richard Benjamin, you know, he's holding his own with these these two powerhouses of, they're bitching. These two guys are bitching. Um, kvetch, it's kvetch, funny. Kvetch. What I noticed about this was this was the first time I had painted. I, I, I used to see these reruns of the Burns. Uh, Burns and Allen, you know, Gracie Allen is yeah. his late wife. These comedy shows he used to do were like cute. 
old black and white reruns back in the day. And say goodnight, Gracie. Goodnight, Gracie. Yeah. <laughs> and and this is the first time I saw George Burns as a different character, as like this spiteful, mm-hmm. mean fuck. Yep. And and you know it, it actually revived his whole career. I gotta say this. Yes, that's where Old God and came he, from, I think. Yeah, Old God and a lot of other stuff. You know, um, Old God was a bit skewed, a bit differently, but. Yeah, it, re- it revived his whole career. The guy was pretty much doing occasional appearances, I think, around this time. Maybe on TV or, or maybe... Uh, yeah, variety shows, shit like that. Variety shows. Tonight Show. What's My Line or Guess Who the Fuck I Am, whatever those shows were called. <laughs> on tonight's episode, Guess Who the Fuck I Am. <laughs> <laughs> to Tell the Truth with Joe Garagiola. Bah, 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 bah. <laughs> yeah. oh, was that Joe Garagiola? Back when, yeah. Not okay. originally, because it was going on in the 50s or 60s, and they had like... Kitty Kelly and people like that on there. I think Steve Allen was on there. But then in the seventies, he was the guy like like me, but here on the side of my head. <laughs> and yeah, in the seventies, yeah, okay. here we go, and it was Joe Garagiola. And I think they revived it recently with uh, Anthony Anderson from Blackish. But you know, yeah, the one I remember is Garagiola. So anyway, it was really interesting to see like George Burns, like you know, like your parents grew up with him. You might have grown up on the reruns, and you're like. What the fuck is he bastard? <laughs> you know, and Walter played, you know, he's such a good actor, Walter Matthau. Skewed older, played older, so he can match George. And it was like, listen, you you bastard. You know, it just really became this, holy shit, you know? Yeah. Which, it was very realistic if you, if you yeah, had grandparents like this. sort of realistic, which means, like, the enjoyment part of it is, like, ooh. No. <laughs> I know. That's what I'm saying. Who laughed at this? Like, holy shit, this is like life. <laughs> I did not so, see No Room to Run, did you? Same here. Yeah, unfortunately. Apparently it's an Australian TV movie, so don't ask me. Yeah, it's an Australian TV movie from about 77, so it's a couple of years later. Um, Quark. Yes, Quark from 1977 to 78, which is actually kind of an interesting thing because it wasn't a straight run. Now we come to a fond memory from a rather young age. In essentially the same year that Star Wars came out, a theatrical experience which left me nonplussed, though I did have a few figures in both an X-Wing and Tywin fighter somewhere between then and its sequel, which I actually did like, the much darker Empire Strikes Back, and my folks who were far more interested in it than I was, gave me a Star Wars sheet and pillowcase that I had used regularly for a few years there. I was more of a Logan's Run fan at the time. A rather weird sci-fi comedy show appeared one night when I was left over at my grandmother's because they went out to whatever, you know, party. They always watched crap over there. Golf, Lawrence Welk, Bowling for Dollars, and every single time the news came on throughout the day and night on whatever channel. So unless something fun like Match Game PM or Benny Hill was on, I tended to go over to their bedroom and watch their tiny black and white for stuff like Navy vs. the Night Monsters. And this particular night, Quark. It had a guy I already knew and liked, Richard Benjamin, and two hot blonde twins, plus Transfer's Rhinestone and Dollman's Tim Thomerson from our Full Moon Pictures and Sylvester Stallone shows. And unlike the usual Star Trek, Buck Rogers, Blake Seven, Farscape, or Firefly crew traveling through space, they're actually garbage men. They're space garbage men. There's the expected crew of aliens, robots, and oddballs, like Thomerson's weird transsexual humanoid who keeps randomly flipping between a butch psycho and a really effeminate femme at the drop of a hat. I recall being really angry at the network for not picking up the pilot, and was thrilled that it did return about six months later, but only for a handful of episodes before being shut down again. And that was it for three decades. I mean, there's no reruns, even on sci-fi in the 90s, until it mysteriously resurfaced on DVD in 2008. So, of course, I got that right away. <laughs> did it hold up a childhood memories? Well, 
few things do. I mean, stuff like the Poland Halloween, the Star Wars Christmas special, Legends and Roast of the Superheroes, and Hilarious House of Frightenstein turn out to be really horrible but bizarrely amusing bits of obscure nostalgia. And others like the Larry Storch, Forrest Tucker, Ghostbusters, and Buck Rogers were fun, but no great works for the ages. Quark was more the former than the latter, but like all these shows, not to mention stuff that did hold up, like Arc 2, the first season of Isis, The Bionic Woman, and the first season of Two of Wonder Woman, I'm glad they were finally released a DVD. Why the Nicholas Hammond Spider-Man, which was great, and I was able to see back when the Sci-Fi Channel didn't show crap like reality TV, and as music as it can be, wrestling, is still unreleased as a glaring black mark on the studios and Disney Marvel in particular. This show park runs about eight episodes total, but series creator Buck Henry managed to satirize all sorts of then popular sci-fi from Doctor Who. He's got a very Cybermat-like pet named Ergo that's a little plastic saran wrap caterpillar thing that devours all sorts of crap. And when he lets it out of its cage, it tends to attack him and crawl over to the damn place, much like the equally cheap-looking Cybermats of the Troughton and Baker eras. Star Trek, both the sets, his regular delivery of the expositional captain's mm. log, and even some of the series' sound effects are swiped, and a few of the episodes are direct satires on original series episodes like Mirror, Mirror, and Shore Leave, in an episode that nods to Benjamin's first film, which is entitled Goodbye, Columbus. Star Wars, the second episode, even features Michael and Sarah as a Darth Vader analog. Zardoz, said episodes and Sarah's Death Star is a very Zardoz-like floating head, and Benjamin regularly reports to someone called The Head, who's an old guy with a giant forehead floating in a black background, much akin to the titular character we discussed in our Sean Connery show. 2001, How Like Computer tries to take over the ship in one episode, and of course we talked 2001 in our Cubic show, and the recent Star Wars, Forbidden Planet, Lost in Space, perhaps even looking forward to Buck Rogers or Hitchhiker's Guide, you know, both series were still a year or two away, though the former serial was around since the 30s and 40s. In the cheap-looking and rather ineffectual robot that's part of the crew, not to mention Farscape and the humanoid plant crew member of Ficus, Flash Gordon, whose campy revival film, which was two years away, in a two-parter where they kidnapped by a Ming the Merciless type, a Princess Aura type falls for Benjamin, and they're rescued by the Forest People. You can see all the direct parallels. Hell, even Cousin It from the Adams Family is pulled into all this as yet another crew member. As you can see, it was pretty clever for all its borshiness, managing to satirize just about every major sci-fi series save Planet of the Apes in the course of a rather short-lived sitcom. The biggest thing that keeps this from being successful is the later Hitchhiker's Guide or even a comedic variant of Blake 7 is the ubiquitous laugh track and borshiness of the whole affair. Delivered with more of a British-style dry humor, this probably would have been remembered as a sort of subversive satire classic rather than a forgotten oddity amidst the sea of sitcom dross. That's really a shame, because they had a hell of a lot of potential. I still like it, but yeah, it's just too American, too borscht So, what's your take? You know, Buck Henry is uh, probably not well remembered as like being... The big comedy guy at the time, him and Mel Brooks. The comedy guy, but a big comedy guy with the edge. Yes. And and it's funny that he got shit made that, you know... See, Mel Brooks was very, very successful doing what Mel did. <laughs> Borscht Bell humor. Borschbelt humor, and then as Mel's movies went on, they got more and more bizarre. Yes, like Silent Movie, which we talked in a Burt Reynolds show. Silent Movie, or even Young Frankenstein has some shit going on. Like, what? What? What was this? Or The End? High Anxiety. Oh, The End. High Anxiety, I think, is one of the most fucking funny Mel Brooks movie. It actually Unfortunately, is. Unfortunately, I walked out of History of the World. Yeah, I couldn't take that. No, 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 yes. Look, really? This isn't that great. It's not that great. It's probably a big mistake. You you can't make... Only Monty Python can make a musical at the Spanish Inquisition. <laughs> when you do, somebody else does it and it just it didn't work. Yeah. Anyway, so Buck Henry, 
and a knife edge twist to it. And of course, this has the Barnstable twins. Huh. Mm-hmm. <sighs> yeah, so, they were pretty uh, hot. They were pretty hot. I think the Landers twins, but not as Hollywood, I guess. Not as Hollywood, but they're, they're still very, yeah. How come these girls aren't on the circuit? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I think Richard Benjamin, he, I don't know if he needs money, but, you know, he hasn't been on the autograph circuit either. Yeah. But then again, he's 84 now. I was going to say he's in his 80s, so. But that doesn't stop many people. <laughs> I remember being extremely weird. And this was around the, the same time as another odd show, The Canadian Star Lost. Remember yes. that? Yes. Oh, that was weird. Yeah. Delay. That was a lot more serious. That was a lot more serious and strange. As well. I think it was looking forward to uh, Space 1999, which we did talk in one of our shows. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I mean, the problem with it, like I said, is just it's too borsty. And it was very hard to find. I mean, those of us who remembered it and really caught it in its original run, and some of us were young kids, like my buddy Sean, who uh, no longer talks to me because he went nuts, became a Trumpster. But uh, he also saw this and loved that show and just talked about it all the time. But I would talk about this for years to people. And I'm like, huh, what are you talking about? It's like, yeah, there's this crazy show, Richard Benjamin as a garbage man. And it was like, you know, it's like sci-fi satire thing. It was great. And like, I don't know what the fuck you're talking about. You know, people look like I had three heads. And then 30 years later, pretty much, all of a sudden, boom, there it is on DVD. I'm like, wow, somebody rescued this thing because nobody ever heard of it. Literally, you could talk to people that knew movies, knew television from that period. I'm like, what? the hell's quark <laughs> like, don't, you're nuts so i'm glad it came out finally at least house calls is next charlie you're embarrassing you're such a cliche here you are a middle-aged man suddenly finds himself alone grows a beard goes berserk with his sexual fantasies in all your life you never screwed around you want to know what i think your eyes are bigger than your putts ah gold diggers i don't know that it's as endemic nowadays but at least from the 50s through the 80s a lot of women would indiscriminately chase after and try to land all sorts of scraggly old men bald guys, fat guys, you name it, so long as they had a big money job or inheritance in hopes of an easy, if loveless, and grin and bear it sex life. Even wait, happen wait, at... wait, 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 not to interrupt you, but, so that's just saying that all you, all you bald, older guys, they're not going to go after you if you got no money. That's it, you got to have money. Hey, <laughs> they don't want you if you got no money no matter what, but yeah, it's worse with this kind of stuff. It even happened to me in younger days. I had a girl that I chased after that would only date guys with a particular model of car. I actually always drove sports cars, albeit used ones, and she only wanted the newest high-end models. I shit you not. And when driving through slummier areas, random black girls like sitting on the porch yelling, Hey, boyfriend, at me, hoping to land a guy they thought had money. I mean, I didn't, but I guess you have to assume that was the motivator. It was surreal. And yet, these things were only two examples among many, just in my own personal experience. Just look at all the Anna Nicole Smiths out there, or the young, hot mistresses of some of the rich, old, married guys that my father and I, in summers for several years, used to work for. Sure as hell wasn't for their looks or stability. So, the whole entire plot here is that the newly single doctor, well into middle age and jowly, is chased after by all sorts of much younger women to this very end. Benjamin is his younger, savvier co-worker who thinks the whole thing is crazy and tries to give Matthew a regular reality check on the situation. Art Carney is the doddering, senile old chief of staff who's using outdated methods on Glenda Jackson of Hopscotch, A Touch of Class from our George Siegel show, and Salome's Last Dance from our Ken Russell show, whose, quote, treatment can cause her permanent damage. As Matho can't let her suffer at the hands of her inept caregiver, he steps in, thereby risking loss of license. Apparently, there's some really asinine regulations around physicians stepping on each other's toes, however wrong-headed the treatments may be. Everything's fucked up in this country. And Carney holds this over him, blackmailing him into supporting Carney for another term as chief of staff. Meantime, Jackson and Matho start to fall for each other, and he pulls a dicey nepotism-style thing where he lands her a job doing clerical work at the hospital. Meantime, someone at the hospital misdiagnoses a patient who dies, leaving his widow to sue the place out of existence. 
In yet another unethical move in a film full of such, Matthew decides to put the moves on the widow, who goes for it but still won't stop the lawsuit jeopardizing his new relationship besides. In the end, Matthew goes ahead nominating Carney so long as he stops treating patients, which doesn't happen. So he tries to undo his nomination after the fact, which somehow is supposed to mean something, unlike, say, a botched election <laughs> cost 2016. Credits roll with Carney presumably still in power and screwing up patients' lives, Jackson shutting Matthew out, and the widow suing the hospital for all it's worth. Who the fuck wrote this again? Apparently this absurdity of an old folks fantasy was popular enough to spawn a TV sitcom of the same name with Ling Recreate of the atrocious Georgie girl from a Charlotte Rampling show and Cagney and Lacey's Sharon Gless in the Glenda Jackson role and that dork Wayne Rogers Trapper John from the TV version of MASH in the Mathow role. Now, I like Jackson a lot. She's great in Russell and in Touch of Class with Siegel, but arguably even better with the same co-star of Mathow and Hopscotch where they're both aging spies with a flame for each other. But this... Mm. It's so sexless and geriatric, not to mention unfunny and morally and legally compromised in every possible respect. I'm amazed it was even lensed, much less do well enough to spawn a sitcom that apparently ran for three whole years, though I thankfully have zero memory of its existence, which is seriously unusual for a literal historian like myself. What's your take? Well, well Glenda Jackson... Ah, ah, sorry. Glenda Jackson, she's... she's uh... A powerhouse of an actress and a politician, you know. Yes. She won the, the Academy Award twice. Women in Love, Ken Russell, and A Touch of Class, another film. On television, Elizabeth Chu, Elizabeth R. I remember that back in the day. And she's been the parliamentary undersecretary of state for transport from 97 to 99 under Tony Blair. Holy shit. Oh, no. Oh, my gosh. She's 86. Um. <laughs> Very well known to lots of Ken Russell films and music lovers and God knows The Muppet Show. You know. <laughs> yes, there was not Ken Russell's The Muppet Show. I like to see that. <laughs> that would be great. <laughs> it would have fit her decadence though. <laughs> Walter Matthau, post Charlie Varick, seemed to be another guy that was undergoing a uh, career revitalization. Mm-hmm. And we just we just spoke of him in another film. He would soon, in the late seventies, early eighties. Get back in touch with Jack Lemmon, his frequent co-star in the 1950s, early 1960s, and they would have a whole run of pictures. Like Buddy Buddy. Including a very strange film with Klaus Kinski. Yes, that's why I want to see that again. I remember it being rather dark and amusing. Yeah, it's rather dark and amusing. It's a, a, this is not really angling toward the geriatric or senior community as a comedy. It's just, it's like, who is this made for, this kind of thing? I think Benjamin holds his own. With a pretty strong cast of, you know, old timers, no pun intended. But <laughs> the next film I always found a bit of a bizarre thing. I actually saw this one in the theater, believe it or not. Love at first bite. I think I'm gonna love immortality. There is one small disadvantage, you can only live by night. That's alright, I can never get my shit together till seven PM anyway. George Hamilton of our Bardot shows Viva Maria and Zorro the Gay Blade himself gets evicted from his castle in Transylvania in favor of turning it into a Russian gymnastic training center. Renfield, Artie Johnson of Laugh-In, and he moved to Disco Era, New York City, where Draco's coffin, with him in it, is misdelivered to a black church funeral, making all the mourners freak out and faint when he rises up to say hello. There's a lot of fish out of water and end time business before he sees a photo spread of ditzy fashion model Susan St. James of Macmillan and Wife, It Takes a Thief, and Carbon Copy, the latter two discussed in our Mission Impossible and George Siegel shows. And the rest of the film is his pursuit of her and their falling for each other where our hero Benjamin, a descendant of Van Helsing who changed his name to Rosenberg and neptly tries to convince everyone that Hamilton is a vampire using a Star of David instead of a cross and such like. 
Michael Pataki of The Return of Count Yorga, Grave of the Vampire, The Bizarrely Still Unreleased, Nicholas Hammond Spider-Man, and our John Saxon shows The Glove, Dick Sean, LSD, and the hippie Hitler himself and the producers, George and Louise Jefferson, Charmin's psychic friend Hemsley and Isabel Sanford, also the atrocious post-I-Spy, Colvin Cosby stinker, Hickey and Boggs, director Stan Dracody's only notable further credit is the Amy Dolan's Tony Danza, She's Out of Control, while scriptwriter Robert Calvin's few credits include the English dub of Mario Bava's Dr. Goldfoot and the Bikini Machine and the Happy Hooker Goes to Washington, but the film is full of schlocky humor sufficient to entertain me in childhood when I saw this theatrically, and actually was the nearly the highest grossing film of 1970 and the second most profitable film ever released by American International. I never forgot the closing credit roll, which literally notes one minor character as Gay in Elevator, which has since whitewashed to the politically correct guy over at IMDb, but watch the film, it's in there. Unlike a lot of comedies from this era, it actually holds up reasonably well, and I always enjoyed it immensely for what it is. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I... I... I too saw this in the theater. I'm like, what the fuck? <laughs> I, I I have no ill will toward anybody in this film, but I was like, yeesh. I, <laughs> I saw George Hamilton at a convention uh, about three years ago, and he, he looked remarkably well-preserved. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I don't know. Yeesh. I kind of like the Jamie Gillis version of this better. What, Dracula Sucks? Dracula Sucks and Dracula <laughs> Blessed First Bite, the the other two, the other one. I thought Jamie Jamie Gillis was a fine Dracula, actually. Um, Pissing on Serena? <laughs> one, was, one had Serena and the other one had uh, Vanessa Del Rio. Two great actresses, by the way. Um <laughs> No, actually, they're pretty good movies. If you see the original non-comedy version, um, as far as the this, I don't know. <laughs> you already said that. I know, but I don't know. I I don't know what I felt about this. I I remember watching it and thinking, <laughs> it's borsty, but it's not as bad as something like Once Bitten from a couple of years later. No, and it's certainly not as bad as House Calls or something like that. Sunshine Boys. No, you're right. You're right. I agree with you there. I I just don't know what to make of this, and it's like, ah, uh, surprisingly a hit. Oh, a huge hit. Was Scavenger Hunt as well? Yes, uh, and I should also mention it's better than that horrible. What was that thing? Uh, was it Dracula the Dirty Old Man, the one that Mel Brooks did with Leslie Nielsen years later? Oh my God. Dracula. No, not, uh, no, what was that called? Um, Dracula Dead and Loving It? Yes, that was it. Wow. You know, vampire comedies are really bad as a rule, so this is definitely the best of those. Well, yeah, Mel's, Mel Brooks started to lose it, as I kind of like hinted at yeah. before. But So, Scavenger Hunt. Scavenger Hunt, 1979. hit out of nowhere. We covered this amusing, if stupid, Mad Mad World meets Cannibal Run-style Starfucker caper film in our Roddy McDowell show. But get a load of the cast here. Richard Benjamin, James Coco, Scatman Crothers, Ruth Gordon, Cloris Leachman, Cleveland Little, Roddy McDowell, Robert Morley, Richard Mulligan, Tony Randall, Dirk Benedict, Willie Ames, Stephen First, Meatloaf, Vincent Price, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Stuart Pankin, and Harry Pollock II. <laughs> Directed by Michael Schultz, who gave us Cooley High and Car Wash from our Black Exploitation show, and Carbon Copy. And Carbon Copy from our George Siegel show. Not to mention the amusing 80s black comedies Crush Groove, The Last Dragon, and Disorderlies. And if you don't think the first two are comedies, you haven't seen them. 
this one is about an inheritance left by crazy rich fuck Vincent Price to whichever group of his relatives or employees can win a big scavenger hunt for dozens of bizarre articles like the gold-plated toilet seat from a plush hotel or the raccoon tail off a Hell's Angels chopper. You can imagine just how absurd things get. And even if you walk into this one po-faced, eventually you will burst out laughing. It's stupid but fun, and definitely one of the few comedies of effectively the 80s that still holds up for what it is. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I have to agree. It's it's fucking funny. It's it's ridiculous. I mean, unfortunately, I got to the point where after seeing Ruth Gordon and Harold and Lord, I'm like, that, that movie was about a 20-year-old guy and an 80-year-old woman. Uh-huh. And, uh-huh, yeah, uh-huh. I have a problem with that movie, too. A lot of problems with that movie. <laughs> There's a lot of problems with that movie. She wasn't 80 at the time, but she looked it. Um, Banana, so, nana, full fan. Sorry, Ruth. <laughs> Sorry, Ruth, up there in heaven, wherever you are. No, 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 no meanness. Hey, she was fine in Rosemary's Baby. No, she's great. She's a great actress. Canon she's in really that. Good. She was really good. She was really good because she, yeah, you know, she's she was another stage veteran who who knew how to play a particular part. This was the time that there were a lot of things like this. I forget about the Cannonball Run movies, which we covered in part. And a Burt Reynolds show. And a Burt Reynolds show. We never did Jackie Chan. Why not? <laughs> but there were things like this, like this, called the Big Bus. Remember mm-hmm. the Big Bus? Sure. Do. And and there was uh there there were other kind of pictures. They they were like, all right, go through that Rolodex, Joe. Why, why? <laughs> go through the Rolodex? See who's not working. Funny well, thing I, happened. I, I, got, I got I got this guy and uh, you know the guy uh, from uh, Scatman Crowley. Yeah, or get Scatman Crowley. Mm-hmm. All right, come on, Joe, go through that Rolodex. There were a lot of pictures like this in a three-year span, and this is one of the better ones. I think even the Cheetos guy, Avery Schreiber, was in this, wasn't he? <laughs> yeah, I think Avery Schreiber's in this, too. And and this is one of the better ones, because it's actually fucking funny in yes. parts. There are parts that you think, man, this is really stupid, and you're going to want to laugh, and this is so absurd. <laughs> yeah, right. So so if you're going to see, like, any of those stupid movies with, like, 200 television and <laughs> lesser-known uh, movie stars... See this one. Yeah, definitely. I totally agree with that. So I was not able to see, in recent years, The Last Married Couple in America, but I did see it way back when, probably on HBO in the very early 80s. But, yeah, I don't remember it that well. So did you see that one? Yeah, I think we talked about this in our George Siegel show. This is, uh, you know, George George really uh, was uh, enjoying quite the renaissance. and uh, He did a whole show on him. <laughs> Did a whole show on him. You know, he was enjoying quite the renaissance in the late 1970s, uh, early 80s. And he would enjoy that again later on. And and uh, Gilbert Cates, who had done Oh God, Book Two, or George Burns, we just mentioned that. Uh, Gilbert Cates had directed that. It's another one of those California couples having problems in their marriage. They want the sexual revolution. Well, now the sexual revolution has changed in the late 70s. It's not as freewheeling as it was in the late 60s, early 70s. So life can get disruptive and pretty strange. I yet saw this. And, you know, Natalie Wood, this is the last picture she did before she died working on Brainstorm. Natalie Wood, always a hottie. Yes, she was. And, you know, Richard Benjamin's fine as the family friend also undergoing a... uh, He, uh, why does Richard Benjamin find himself in films where he's undergoing marital issues? Where <laughs> the guy's been still married to the same woman for like I don't know what forty years, fifty years, sixty-two years. Holy shit! So you know, it's funny that he actually winds up casting these things a lot. 
It's, yeah, right. He winds up being cast a lot in guy who has shaky marital relationships. He's been married to the same woman for 60... Bless you, Richard Benjamin. I know you're still out there. Yeah. And bless you, Paula Prentice. Exactly. Good luck to you guys. Uh, and I'll tell you that the Italian-Jewish thing works out because I got uh, an aunt that married a Jewish guy, Morton. I love that guy. And the two of them, you know, he was funny as shit. And, they, you know, as far as I know, until they died, they were still together, so... There you go. Yeah. It, it works. <laughs> I remember the supporting cast of this being cutesy, but, you know, it's not terrible. Bob Dishy, who could really be kind of interesting. Valerie Harper, Dom DeLuise, Alan Arbus, Priscilla Barnes. If you go find this, The Last Married Couple in America isn't a terrible marriage in crisis movie. It's just like it's not biting. And I think for something like that nowadays to actually nag at you, it's got to be biting. Yeah, very true. So, uh, next up, How to Beat the High Cost of Living, and they spell cost with a dollar sign. Uh, the lone film from TV director Robert Shearer, this rather grim variation on Fun with Dick and Jane from a George Siegel show, is sadly all too realistic take on runaway inflation and how much of a hell trying to get by actually is when everything's stacked against you. Features Susan J. James again as a divorcee with two kids and a third on the way who has to fuck her equally busted boyfriend in the garage so as not to disturb the kids. A rather attractive Jessica Lang is running a loss leader antique shop and indebted to her veterinarian hubby, Benjamin, when they discover that the IRS doesn't consider it a business loan but a hobby, i.e. doubling their debt with back taxes overnight, which leads him to the rather unlikely remedy of suing his wife so she has to file for bankruptcy in order to wipe it out. And Saturday Night Live's Jane Curtin is a frigid wife who gets dumped and left penniless when her hubby runs off with a younger and more appreciative girl. As they were all cheerleaders at the same school, they put their heads together and come up with a plot to heist a promotional globe filled with money at the local mall. Being an ostensible comedy, all sorts of shenanigans ensue. Lang tries to start a shopper uprising while doing a striptease, and in the end, they walk away with enough of the cash to return to solvency. Oh, credits. Sybil Danning of Howling 2 and Reform School Girls, Eddie Albert of Hustle and the Devil's Reign from our Burt Reynolds, William Shatner, and Satan on the 70 shows also appear. And Green Acres. Yes. <laughs> It's still great shakes as a heist film. It's far too depressingly true to be funny. And Benjamin is at his least likable here, coming off far more sleazy, if not mercenary, than usual. It sounds like a subversive indictment of the failures of capitalism, but this is about a million miles for the far more biting fun with Dick and Jane, or even related films like Carbon Copy or Trading Places from our George Siegel and Eddie Murphy shows. I tried watching this with my wife, and she hated the ongoing atrocities hitting everyone due to no real fault of their own. In today's world, in the heart of recession, Cold War, OPEC created gas shortages and issues with terrorism, it simply hits way too close to home without any real catharsis to make up for all the extended and ever-worsening horrors that the film gives these folks to suffer through. I didn't like it at all, and she despised it. She made me shut it off, so <laughs> what's your take? Well, it's interesting, yo. Know, you, you you got a pretty terrific cast. Oh, yeah. Susan St. James, uh, McMillan, and wife, Jane Curtin from Saturday Night Live. She was at the height. Mm -hmm. Jessica Lang. Uh, Jessica Lang from like so many films. And when when you make a movie that's like trying to be caustic and subversive, yeah, we you know we had the economic recession, we had the gas the gas shortage and the prices going sky high, ten dollars, whatever they were. This stuff's not funny. <laughs> and and I think Robert Shearer may have been the Saturday Night Live associated person and uh, probably got this going. But, yeah, and you're right. Richard Benjamin is just more unlikable than usual in, in the role that he's in. And I was like, yeah, I don't know about this. So, uh, no, it's not a film I recommend to anyone, really. No. So... 
Next up, he did something called Witch's Brew. I've never seen that. And First Family, which I haven't seen since, you know, again, like the early days of HBO. I know it was about, it was a satire on the presidency and I think specifically the Carter presidency. Because, you, know, you know, we had the whole problem with Billy Carter being a drunk with Billy Beard and all that crap. And uh, Rosalind and their daughter and anyone who's around them will recognize what they're satirizing. But it's I know it's thought Dick Van Patten and I think Richard Benjamin was the, uh, what was he, the press secretary or something. Mm. But that's all I remember. Witches Brew, I saw a long time ago. And you know, the funny thing about it was, I don't know if this ever play theatrical. I'm not sure because, <laughs> right, hold on to your socks, people. Um, it was co-directed by Herbert L. Strzok, who did I Was a Teenage Frankenstein, <laughs> the Monster. So how did Richard Benjamin at the, one of the heights of his career wind up working for this guy? <laughs> Pretty freaking weird. Mm-hmm. Um, Terry Gars in this, Lana Turner. Mm-hmm. Yes, Lana Turner. Catherine Lay Scott from Dark Shadows. Dark Shadows. And it's basically a uh, remake of it's a terrific movie with Peter Wingard and the... Uh, I love Peter Wingard. Black and White movie, The Night of the Eagle. Oh, yes. We just saw that the other night for Halloween. Yes. Night of the Eagle, also known as Burn Witch Burn over here. Burn Witch Burn. Yes. There you go. <laughs> But it's a comedy version of that, and so a comedic, a comedic version of that. And I'm like, why is Richard Benjamin working with this guy, working for this guy? And I, so I, I know it went on VHS. Possibly no one wanted it. Yeah, it was not a big hit. Let's put it that way. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I really don't know. Saturday the 14th. So Saturday the 14th, and to my sister Lucille, who could always be counted on to borrow anything I have and not return it, I leave 3,000 overdue library books. Oh, and he does have one more thing for you. <laughs> Richard Benjamin and wife Paul Apprentice of the Stepford Wives and Buddy Buddy, discussing our Klaus Kinski show, who co-starred with him in both the late 60s sitcom He and She and Catch-22, inherit an old house they move into with their doofy-looking whiny son and tween daughter, sitcom starlet and Give Me a Break co-lead Carrie Michelson. Unfortunately, there's supposedly a horrible grimoire in the house, sought after by the unlikely vampire couple of Jeffrey Tambor from Dog Day Afternoon, from our Al Pacino show, and fairly hot number Nancy Lee Andrews, whose only other credit was a bit part in the Pacino Scarface, also from the same show. Who's way out of Jeffrey's league. Just check her out with her hair slicked back with that long Italian-style ponytail. Wow. As this, despite its slasher film parody title, is a borscht-belt dad-joke pastiche of 50s horror and sci-fi pictures, the kid reading said book lets several goofy monsters and aliens out to cause mischief, which, of course, Benjamin and Prentice are too dense to notice. Things take another turn into mocking both Jaws and the old Dark House murder mystery. They hire an exterminator to get rid of their sudden bat infestation, the vampires, of course, but it's actually Van Helsing, officious comedian Severn Garden, who played crazy shrinks and scientists in films like Vanishing Point from our Charlotte Rampling show, Conquest and Battle of the Planet of the Apes from our Go Ape show, Hopscotch and Rodney Dangerfield's Back to School, who's the real baddie of the picture. Turns out Tambor and Andrews were the good guys all along. There's a happy ending, roll credits. Benjamin generally starred in savvier, more thoughtful, if not mature comedies, which appealed to the same market that devoured Woody Allen films and such like. This one, however, came from Roger Corman's wife, Julie, who go on to deliver the goofy, if intermittently entertaining slasher Chopping Mall, and five-credit director Howard R. Cohen, who'd actually write and direct a sequel to this, sans any of the cast, and stunning stripper film leading light Maria Ford vehicle, Deathstalker 4, a series I always found quite entertaining for all its no-budget sword sorcery and sex and was more akin to the recent more slapstick affairs like Love at First Bite and Scavenger Hunt, just without the laughs. 
when it came out on HBO back around the time of release, my father found it pretty damn funny, but even as a kid, I thought it was really corny and didn't elicit much more than that chuckle, though I did appreciate the then-older Michelson running around in her skivvies in one scene. <laughs> it's pretty lame and tries too hard. There you go, Carrie Michelson. <laughs> see, now you're coming around. <laughs> well, see, I was younger than her, so I was like, oh, okay, this is pretty cute. Now I'm like, she's she's like, Joe, <laughs> No, I agree with you. Uh, what is what is Richard Benjamin hanging out with these people? I, I, exactly. You know, I, you know, Howard Cohen on this picture, the guy on the last picture. You know, Howard R. Cohen also did Gorgo. You remember that? <laughs> you know, and, and it's okay. It's cutesy. There would be quite a few sequels to this, but none featuring this cast. Yeah. So he does a TV movie packing it in. He's on Bray Redbury Theater. I haven't seen that. Yeah, me either. A whole bunch of crap. The only other thing from his acting was the Pentagon Wars, and we'll get to that one because now we're going to go into his directorial work, which he started immediately after Saturday the 14th. My favorite year, 1982. Yes. And right off the heels of one of his most successful film roles, Benjamin shifts his career from on-screen performance to behind-the-scenes direction. Well-received and one of the top profitable releases in that year, this period pastiche of the experiences of Mel Brooks as a head writer for Sid Caesar's 50s TV show, with characters representing fellow gag writer Neil Simon and Floyd Guest swashbuckler Errol Flynn. Essentially the Mel Brooks analog, wormy little Marklin Baker, Balky's roommate in Perfect Strangers, finds himself standing up for his hero, Errol Flynn analog Peter O'Toole of Supergirl, and tasked with keeping him sober for the week before the live show goes on the air. During that time, they deal with their mutual embarrassing families and learn a lot of private details about each other and try to avoid a pissed-off mob type who's going after Baker for a recurring skit that mocks him on the show. Seriously, that's the whole film. There's a weird cast, including Jessica Harper of Suspiria from our Dario Gento show, Brian De Palma's Phantom of the Paradise, and Woody Allen's Stardust Memories, cult film standby Cameron Mitchell of everything from Blood and Black Lace and Eric the Conqueror from our Mario Bava show, Slaughter from our Blaxploitation show, and Island of the Fishmen, a.k.a. Screamers from our Talent Sleeves show, to Nightmare on Wax, The Toolbox Murders, and the sort of crap that Vinegar Syndrome puts out. And you can see hundreds of their releases reviewed over at thirdicinema.wordpress.com if you're interested. Bill Macy of Maud and blowsy Lainey Kazan, Jack Kirby's inspiration for Big Barda and star of Lady in Cement, The Delta Force, and The Associate from our Frank Sinatra, Chuck Narsom, Whoopi Goldberg shows. It's a dramedy, so you get the expected quote-unquote humanity and quote uplifting message between Baker and O'Toole, and the show works out in the end. Roll credits. Typical Hallmark Channel crap. And was it funny? Please, I don't understand why people love this fucking film, but they did. What's your take? I love this movie. What are you, fucking crazy? Really? Are you fucking nuts? Are you serious? <laughs> I love this movie. Wow, you got some schmaltz in you, man. <laughs> are you... Schmaltz in your soul. <laughs> are you nuts? Go ahead. Let's hear why. Let's hear this. This is a great film. This is like... I, I was about to say all I'm kinds sorry, of man. shit. And you're like, this is terrible. Come on, man. No, go for it. Say what you got to say. I want to hear this. All right, so, so my favorite year, you know, directed by Richard Benjamin, like first time he directs a picture, major motion <laughs> picture, and Peter O'Toole as Alan Swan, which is like, yeah, okay, he's supposed to be Flynn, and uh, I'm no huge fan of Mark Lynn Baker because I, I, oh, I hated God. that show. And Jessica Harper very rarely made too many movies. And, uh, you know, Suspiria, et cetera. Fan of the Paradise. Fan of the Paradise. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Joe Bologna. You know, we, we've seen Joe on and off. And Lenny Kazan, who was like a singer. She was yes. a singer. And, and Broadway stage Broadway person. stage person. Boy, did we not see her as a, like, bosomy mom guilt type. So, <laughs> she's... <laughs> 
Cameron Mitchell, et cetera, et cetera. So the thing is why I love this, it was like, so the whole conceit is like, there's this live TV show, and, and Joe Bologna as King Kaiser is actually playing, let me get this straight now, he's playing uh, Sid, Caesar. Sid Caesar. And Sid Caesar is in this fucking thing too, which mm-hmm. which is interesting. So so Joe Bologna is playing King Kaiser as Sid Caesar, and Sid Caesar's in the movie too. All right, all right, whatever. Okay. Better. <laughs> and Peter O'Toole is playing Errol Flynn. So the whole conceit is Errol Flynn's career is on the <laughs> shot. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Sid Caesar's doing this TV show, and he wants Errol to make an appearance. And, like, all, you know, Alan Swan, Peter O'Toole is Alan Swan. You know, he's like, he's a drunk. He's a sh- he's shot. Yeah, he, he can't even face meeting his daughter, but it's gonna be live. And they, they, you got, you got to do a little skit. They say to him, and you got to do a little swordplay, like you did in those famous swordplay movies you did. And he's like, yeah, Peter, what's so great in this? He's like, my dear, I can't, I can barely stand up. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and, you know, and, and then you got gangsters, gangsters. You know, you got like yeah, uh, Cameron Mitchell's boys showing up doing that heavy Brooklynized thing. Hey, you! And they like threaten the guys who are putting on the show like hey you know you can't do this because of whatever reason i just love this <laughs> oh my god you don't like this no it was terrible <laughs> what the fuck dude it's all schmaltz man <laughs> i don't see the schmaltz at all yeah. i cried every time i saw it <laughs> no no i didn't cry i just think it's a lovely movie that's exactly the problem it's a lovely movie <laughs> show it to your grandma Anyway, whatever. No, I, I really, no, I really. You're allowed to love it. It's fine. <laughs> wow, I didn't like this. Nah, I really kind of hate this kind of shit. So, <laughs> so anyway, you're uh, evil man. You're evil man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, get, I got a black heart. Uh, <laughs> so he does Racing with the Moon. I don't really remember that film at all. Did not see it. But City Heat is next. Written by a strangely popular comedy schlockmeister Blake Edwards. This period <laughs> piece in would be neo noir. <laughs> brings action comedy stars Burt Reynolds and Clint Eastwood together. Remember, this is around the time Clint was doing the Every Which Way films, and Burt just started his run of grittier cop films like Stick and Sharky's Machine, which was covered West twice previously for our Burt Reynolds and Clint Eastwood shows, naturally. The bottom line is, this one came at the wrong time. Not only was it anachronistic in terms of attempting both period pace, but also in trying to be a 70s-style neo-noir in the heyday of shirtless and over-muscled testosterone action heroes like Schwarzenegger and Rambo Arrow Stallone, both whom we did shows on as well. Even the more pensive Chuck Norris had drifted off into missing in action Delta Force Invasion USA territory, the tenor of times had shifted dramatically from the more pensive, introspective, vulnerable anti-hero and, quote, new man of the 70s to something more comic book fantasy-oriented and juvenile, plus tagging that taciturn Burt, who was clearly depressed and in physical pain due to a botched stunt early in the filming, and the whole thing becomes both joyless and ineffectual, neither fish nor foul. It's probably the worst misfire you're ever likely to see, but in the end, it really just doesn't work. Well, I, I was going to suggest a Blake Edwards show, but I, I see how you detest it. Blake Edwards, oh my God, really? <laughs> I, 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 I think Blake Edwards... I would almost do that for a joke. <laughs> I think Blake, Blake Edwards is very interesting. Person. Why, because of uh, Victor Victoria? Serial, the, all the Pink Panther films. The Pink Panther films, you're right. The first couple were pretty good. Um, and Victor Victoria has its weird merits. <laughs> Victor Victoria, yo, there's some stuff out there that's really interesting, but I'm not going to go there. Um, it's a screenplay by Blake, uh, Blake Edwards, which I'm surprised he didn't direct this. Directed by Richard Benjamin, 
And this is well known as the team, the only team up of Clint Eastwood and Burt Reynolds, and famously known as the film where Burt Reynolds actually hurt his back so badly all the way until his death. He uh, had experienced back issues and, and he was on serious painkillers for the next, I don't know how many fucking decades, 84, 20, 30 years, I don't know. 30 years. Yeah. Interesting cast. I mean, you had Jane Alexander, Madeline Kahn, I mean, Carrie, <laughs> I mean, fame, right? Fresh off of fame. Yep. I'm gonna leave. Richard Roundtree. We know Richard Roundtree. Tony Lobianco, Nicholas Worth, Robert. I mean, it's, it's got a fun cast, but you know, oh, kind yeah. of, it kind of falls flat. It's not as bad as something like Harlem Nights, but it's you know the same kind of idea, but it's, I don't know, this doesn't work. <laughs> it doesn't work, but but unfortunately, you know, like like Bert really hurt himself on this film, and, and yeah. if anyone saw his last few pictures, it's like, eh. Richard Benjamin's next directorial film was a huge hit. Yes, it was. The Money Pit, 1986. Tom Hanks, who had only recently come off starring in a slasher film, He Knows You're Alone, playing an unstable D&D LARPer in Ronan Jaffe's Mazes and Monsters, dressing in drag for the ridiculous bosom buddies and the amusingly crass bachelor party, who can forget the scene with Nick the Dick, was trying to build a career as a Hallmark Channel middle American safe, quote, comedy star in harmless dreck like Splash. Only his sixth film role, this one posits him as, of all things, a lawyer. Yeah, sure with his father going through a midlife crisis marrying a young island girl halfway around the world and avoiding extradition a la Adam Clayton Powell when he ran off the Bimini after he books a whole bunch of money off Hank's firm's clients. Presumably as a result, Hank's and his violinist girlfriend cheers Shelley Long of such cinematic classics as Caveman, Night Shift, and Troop Beverly Hills wind up evicted from their apartment and more or less forced into buying a house that turns out to be a structural disaster. Let's just get the whole thing short by saying this is a remake of the honestly rather depressing screwball comedy Mr. Blandings Builds His Dream House with a far more appealing Cary Grant and Myrna Loy. If you've seen that far superior original, there's no need whatsoever to waste your time on this one, particularly with a brillo-headed young Hanks and decidedly prim Long in the leads, and no weird side plot about Long's conductor ex hanging around and building tensions over whether or not she's going to have a fling with the guy. Much derided stand-up comic Yakov Smirnoff also briefly appears, kicking off the whole disastrous venture. This one played a lot on HBO back in the day, and that's about all I can say for it. I never liked Tom Hanks, and I still don't. Nothing personal. I don't think he's a bad guy or anything. It's just that every single thing he's ever started in, beyond the slasher, in the hilariously Jack Chick-like anti-D&D diatribe Mazes and Monsters, sucks some serious ass. His name in the credits equates to Do Not Watch a Pain of Death for Me. <laughs> Whose name in the credits? Tom Cranks. Are you? Like I said, I got no issue with him personally, but I can't watch fucking Tom Hanks films. <laughs> uh, we, have, we have to talk about this. Like, uh, we'll, we'll have a glass of wine, like take a take a lewd and smoke a joint. <laughs> there you go. Little Nikita's next, right? Yes, Little Nikita. Oh, so you have nothing to say about the Money Pit? Yeah, I have nothing to say about the Money Pit. Like, <laughs> I, 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 I should it, say something right there. It's okay. It's not a terrific thing. It's it's okay. I have nothing to say about that movie. <laughs> Little Nikita in downtown and was not able to see it all. Oh, I okay. thought I was going to get My Stepmother's an Alien, but it took forever. It actually went beyond when I did the script and everything. I might not even be here now if I didn't cancel it. <laughs> so, no, I didn't see any of those Okay, three. so Little Nikita was an interesting film. It's a River Phoenix, the late River Phoenix, as a high school student who gets into cyber stuff. And, you know, Sidney Poitier, another late Sidney Poitier, 
this FBI guy, you know, kind of gets in touch with him. So apparently they're sleeper agents from the Soviet Union. Sounds like telephone. Not really, but a lot of people like this movie. It was okay. My stepmother is an alien. You had the amazing cast of Dan Aykroyd, Kim Basinger, and John Lovitz, your favorite. <laughs> it actually was okay, but it was like a box office disaster. It's like another Saturday Night Live skit gone sour. A scientist raising her daughter, and then... Ah, sorry. <laughs> I, sorry, wait, wait, I screwed that up. Dan Aykroyd is the scientist raising his single daughter, and then alien show up. I know, it's a donut. <laughs> it's another one of these things that just did not work. Downtown is a lot better. Did you see that? No, I wasn't able to. Downtown, Anthony Edwards and Boris Whitaker play uh, the two cops. And uh, working the downtown kind of precinct thing. I think what elevates this above other crapola pictures of this time period, 1990, is like the supporting cast. Joe Pantoliano, Art Evans, lots of familiar faces. Uh, Wanda de Jesus, who I recognize because I watch a lot of movies. And... Uh, no relation to Louis the Midget? No. <laughs> Louis de Jesus from uh, it's a buddy Blood Second Freaks. Cop. It's a buddy action cop thing, but it's, it's, it's better than it could be and worse than it could be. Yeah. So Mermaid. next up is big one. Yes, Mermaids, 1990. Ooh, we're going to play my favorite game. Who's the worst mother in the world? Oh, don't tell me. Let me guess. Is it me? I'm a video director and maid of Alias in our Polanski shows, Ninth Gates, Sexy Milf, Lena Olin, Lassie Hellstrom. Both he and replacement director Frank Oz had begged off this project after having to deal with the notoriously difficult Cher and the equally diva-esque Winona Ryder, so somehow it landed in the lap of our man Richard Benjamin. The post-Lisa Loring, Wednesday Adams, and Reverend Bazaar's goddess of doom herself, Christina Ricci, is the little sister, and Zulu Dawn and Super Mario Brothers' Bob Hoskins is the unlikely subject of the fun-loving Fran Drescher-esque Cher, a laid-back and resilient single mom whose daughter Ryder is an erotic bitch that, despite being Jewish, is suffering from a sexually conflated religious mania and plans to become a nun. Of course, she's also, like most young repressed girls, burning at the loins and hot to trot, lusting wildly after a local boy who she eventually fucks, losing her religious nuttery overnight. Richie is just the bratty little kid except for an absurd bit towards the end where Ryder gets the kid loaded and goes off to make like the beast with two backs, leaving Richie to nearly drown save the intervention of the local nuns. Hoskins gets a job in another state, and magically the bickering Bickersons all become one happy nuclear family of neurotic women roll credits. Naturally, this screwed-up slice of life became a huge hit with the Hallmark crowd. All those goddamn pajama people Frank Zappa so rightly called out at the dawn of their hegemony over the 80s, who never needed the rest of the civilized world's wish that they'd all go away, and are now trying to overthrow 200-plus years of democracy to boot. The older I get, the more I believe this. Religion sucks, and rather than help get folks through tough times, all it winds up doing is brainwashing them into conformity and screwed-up, maladaptive right-wing politics. We'd all be better off in a much healthier world without it and them, sadly enough to say. That's all I gotta say on this one. What's your take? <laughs> I don't know how you're connecting your dots on this, but anyway. <laughs> uh, so because she's got freaking religious mania, all she needed to do was get laid. Jeez, <laughs> and that's so typical. It's a it's a, it's a film of its time. You know, Bob Hoskins suddenly catapulted from bit player to like 
leading player, and you got fun cast here. Winona Ryder, Christina Ricci. Uh, apparently, you don't like any of these people. <laughs> um, it's interesting, as you noted, that like Lassie Hallstrom and then Frank Oz were supposed to be working on this, and it, and it, it ended up with Richard Benjamin. It's like, how did that happen? Because they all walked up because they couldn't deal with Ryder and Cher. They're very demanding, apparently. Possibly. So, Richard appeared in a Woody Allen movie, Deconstructing Harry. You know that, right? Uh, no, actually, I haven't seen that one. Yeah. It's a 1997 black comedy about Woody as a successful writer, draws inspiration from people he knows in life, which sounds like every other fucking Woody, Woody Allen, Allen movie yes. you ever saw. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> and don't forget, I stopped after like I think Manhattan or around there, like 1981 or so. I just stopped watching. I was yeah. like, Zelig was like, okay, I've had enough. <laughs> yeah, it's it's full of people who like stop by his house, like Kirstielli, Bob Balaban, Eric Bogosian, who I think passed on, Billy Crystal, Judy Davis, Mariel Hemingway, and so on and so forth. Julia Louise Dreyfus, Stanley Tucci, Robin Williams, the late one. Yeah, I I don't know. I saw this and I was like, I, I like him even worse. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> Milk money. Oh, no, there? actually, uh, Made in America, you missed. 1993. We covered this rather odd take on a rom-com in our Whoopi Goldberg show. Oh, correct. Yes, Benjamin yes. brings a particularly difficult identity politics-obsessed Whoopi. She literally runs a black history slash African tchotchke shop for a living, fighting tooth and nail with, disrupting the life of, and eventually falling for a cracker used car salesman Ted Danson, literally a down-home wannabe cowpoke, when her test-tube baby daughter decides that she wants to track down her father, i.e. sperm donor. As there was a mix-up at the sperm bank, instead of a, quote, smart black man spunk, she wound up with Danson's, and this leads to all sorts of complications for the strident intersectionalist Whoopi. And, and Will Smith, fresh off the Fresh Prince, actually built an entire career off this film where he plays, wait for this, a seriously annoying Urkel knockoff. He's literally the worst part of the film, and you have to wonder why he's even inserted in there, because he has nothing to the plot. It's kind of a mess, but it's hilarious to see how bizarre the real-world Whoopi dancing affair that came out of this actually was, even before the Friars Club blackface incident. My wife brought this one home from her job as a laugh, as she remembered it somewhat fondly from her teens, and we both marveled at just how uncomfortable and awkward it comes off, particularly nowadays. It's worth a laugh, but not the ones that Benjamin and company intended. <laughs> What's your take? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's worth a laugh, but you know, I give I give Richard Benjamin credit for like doing weird shit. Yeah, that's for sure. So you mentioned Milk Money is next, nineteen ninety four. It's easy for you to say you're a professional. Ed Harris of Coma from a Michael Crichton show and George Romero's Night Riders is a single father whose three precocious boys gather together a hundred bucks and bike off to the big city to pay a hooker to show them her tits. Seriously, that's the driver of this film. While they're there, a junkie cons them into a parking garage and holds them up, only to get knocked out by hooker and body double star Melanie Griffith, who can't seem to decide whether she and Dead Bang and her sci-fi and the 70s shows Boy and His Dogs Don Johnson are married or not by the week, who was blowing some businessman in the backseat of the car. She winds up taking them home and meeting Harris, where they eventually fall for each other. So Frank was telling me what you do. Do you enjoy it? Sometimes. I bet you're really good at it. Only one way to find out. Malcolm McDowell of A Clockwork Orange from a Stanley Kubrick show is her pimp's boss who killed the guy and is now after Griffith for money that her pimp stole off him. And the trouble Anne has she's family and resultant issues with abuse and being surrounded by gay conversion flakes is frankly disturbing as shit. Look it up. She also appears as another hooker from Griffith's pimp's stable. 
I never minded this one as ridiculous and neo-family-friendly as it comes off with the annoying kid protagonists who get way too much screen time, as it winds up being a sweet, if completely absurd and amusing rom-com. Harris is believably vulnerable, not an easy task for most guys, especially in those days, and Griffith is oddly likable for all her cutesy by little girl voice and lack of gravitas. It's light entertainment, but just suggestively absurd enough to blow an hour or so with if you're so inclined. What's your take? Uh, yeah, well, this didn't work for me. I, I, I saw it, and I was like, Ed Harris is a force of nature. We all know Ed Harris is a force of nature actor. And this was at the point where Melanie Griffith was still doing some fine work. Um, oh, body double. Which yeah. she chose to. This is a weird cast. It's just a weird subject. <laughs> and, I, you know, I, I didn't like it. Sorry. So the last one that I've seen of his directorial efforts, although he did continue a couple of years into the uh, early 2000s, is the Pentagon Awards from 1998. It's actually a TV movie. Ah, the HB original. A horror unlike any other in its day, which I had to suffer through many a time in my youth, despite rousing opposition and complaints from both myself and my mother, due to my father's tried and true aphorism, I paid for it, I'm going to watch it. The closest analog today would be the often atrocious, but generally not half so heinous, original shows and movies produced for cable channels like the former Sci-Fi Channel in the late 90s, Lifetime and the Hallmark Channel throughout their entire existence, and those awful pay cable things you find on channels like Bravo, Netflix, and yes, HBO. But seldom if ever are they as close to Geneva Convention prohibited torture techniques as the HBO original back in the day, where by far the best you got was the hilariously stupid Tommy Lee Jones epic This Park is Mine, where his disgruntled Vietnam vet booby traps and hunts down anyone who dares enter Central Park in the name of veteran rights and PTSD. Now, that one is so terrible, it's actually laugh out loud funny, and I enjoy it. This one, sadly, never even attempts to approach those lofty lows, featuring Frazier's Kelsey Grammer of The Expendables 3, which we discussed in our Sloan, Schwarzenegger, and Wesley Snipes shows, as a sadly all-too-typical military bigwig whose huge taxpayer investment weapons don't fucking work. So they do their damage to fudge numbers, very reports, and cover up. Hmm, $500 hammers, anyone? I'm not going to sit here and tell you the paveway bomb never missed. It missed by a mean distance of five miles and nearly 50% of the time. In baseball, a guy who hits 400 is considered pretty damn great. In baseball, the losing team isn't killed by their opponents. About a million miles from the biting satire of Catch-22, this ostensible satire slash expose of military ineptitude and overpriced malfeasance looks and feels cheap. I've literally watched dozens of backyard SOV productions that felt more polished than this, and they were a hell of a lot more enjoyable and funny. Grammar tries his best with the decidedly sad material, but a lame cast of nobodies and zero production values leaves this mainly office-set talking heads piece in the dustbin of filmic history. It would have been better off as a sitcom pilot, honestly, and about as unfunny as that. I didn't see it, so I can't comment on that one. Sorry, folks. All right, so that's basically it. I mean, he was on an episode of The Wonderful World of Disney, Laughter on the 23rd Floor, whatever that is, another TV movie. Uh, the Shrink is in. Children's Hospital, he was on that. Yeah, the, the Goodbye Girl, but not the original, I guess. It must have been a remake. A little thing called Murder, and that was the end of it. So anything else you wanted to say to close out on this one? No, I, I no, it was, it was an enjoyable presence. He was a, a fixture on the scene for a long time. And he was he was he was a welcoming presence, but at the same time he what he did different from most actors who had that uh, I would say appearance that he had the the way he came across he could be a real prick yes. sometimes so he was very good at what he did yeah he was very good at what what he did 
based on the role of Tim. Very good. He was uh, definitely a likable person, apparently in real life as well, and that definitely comes across, especially in his comedies. But he, like you said, he was actually a dramatic actor first, and he could pull off you know, some serious roles, and being a real prick, like you said, he could pull off some ridiculously funny like comic roles, like we mentioned Scavenger Hunt and Love at First Play and things like that. And then later he just dropped out of being on screen to direct films that, you know, Neither one of us really liked a lot of them, but nonetheless, they were very popular, and people know these films, like Mermaids, for example, or The Money Pit. So, you know, good for him, and I'm still got to say I'm impressed that this guy has been married to the same woman for so many years, and so far as anybody knows, you know, it's not like they're unhappy or screwing around each other or whatever. They're, they're still together and yeah, yeah. a real couple, so that is a lot to be said for just his personal integrity. They, they've been married for so long that, that their kids are probably my fucking age. Yeah, that's true. I mean, they were married long before I was born. You'll be kidding me. So anyway, <laughs> that was our. Ret- no, I, I I always liked him, and and you know if 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 I had to pick one or two, me personally, if I had to pick two Richard Benjamin films, I say to you guys, hey, you gotta watch these. Westworld. <laughs> Westworld and The Last of Sheila. Yeah, and I might throw in uh, Catch Twenty Two if you hadn't read the book already because that was actually oh yes, good. And Catch Twenty Two for yeah, Catch all right, three. Let's make it three <laughs> and Catch Twenty Two. Yeah. And, you know, if you're into that kind of stuff, I do recommend Quark. Just be warned, it's not as biting as it should be because it's got that laugh track. But it is amusing as hell. And if you're looking for laughs, definitely go for Scavenger Hunt. So, yes. But, yeah, like I said, and, I always liked this guy, and I always thought he's fairly well represented the 70s and the whole new man thing. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, Richard Benjamin does not get enough likes. No, he and you know what? I hope you hear this one day, Richard. You know, because, uh, hey. We're out there rooting for you, man. Yep. You know, we, we like your work. Many a time he's been mentioned on the show. I always like them. So. Yeah. so, thanks for joining us tonight. We hope you enjoyed our little drawing room chat on Richard Benjamin. Yes. Next week, Jamie Lee Curtis. Oh, yeah. Looking forward to that one. If you would like to contact <laughs> us here, comments, suggestions, or you're a filmmaker or musician who'd like to join us on air, drop us a line on our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash weird scenes one. We, we are going to discuss many Jamie Lee Curtis films. <laughs> Yeah, I, I said I'm looking forward to it, and you can see like, oh yeah, this excitement on your part. Uh, hey, you know, I, I I'm not going there yet. Wait till next week. Whoa. Uh, so anyway, <laughs> drop us a line on our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash Weird Scenes One, or our website weirdscenes1.wordpress.com. We're also on Twitter at weirdscenes1, and of course we're on Podbean, thirdeyesinema.podbean.com. We're also on iTunes, so you can look us up under Third Eye Cinema Weird Scenes Inside the Goldmine Podcast. But if you are particular, it's ID 553402044. We're also on Spotify, Amazon Podcasts. We're all over the damn place. If there's podcasts available, just look us up under Third Eye Cinema Weird Scenes Inside the Goldmine Podcast. I'm actually surprised at all the places that we are. So Weird Scenes Inside the Goldmine, brought to you by the new and improved Third Eye Cinema Weird Scenes Network, now on Podbean. So anything else you want to say? or uh... No, we, as always, we always appreciate our audience for listening. And uh, I like that we're stretching out and uh, doing all these things that no one else would do, really. Who else is doing character actors like we are? And, and I think they should be recognized, you know, especially the work from the 70s and the, the 80s and sometimes from the 60s. These guys and women entertained us, and they're really good. We, w- we wouldn't pick anyone that, like, we don't like any of the stuff 
they did. Yeah. Exactly. Even if we're talking about some people like the Eddie Murphy show, where there's like a lot of films, you're like, oh, jeez. You know, we like these people, and they did stuff that stood out to us. And said, you know what? Let's do a show on them. So. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. And, and though, you know, we're two different hosts, you know, sometimes my co-host can't see everything, and sometimes I can't see everything, and sometimes our subjects have worked for decades, so it's hard to catch up and hard to see everything. I think uh, we're trying to get across a good enough uh, representation of what's, what we, you know, what we think, and then, you know, why you guys should check out their work. Yeah, that's what it's about. Yeah, plus all the fun banter between the two of us. Even when we disagree wildly, which is actually amusing. <laughs> yeah, it was like my favorite year, which I think is a fun movie. <laughs> anyway, so see you all next time. p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. Tune into Third Eye Cinema, your source for in-depth discussion of cult cinema with a focus on film that matters. Cult, grindhouse, drive-in, independent, and underground film from the dawn of the talkies through the early 90s. This is a forum where we explore genre film and music from around the world, in-depth conversation and career analysis with directors, actors, and musicians, and open discussion on films that matter, those that fall outside the mainstream corporate film by boardroom committee. These are the problems of the auteur, the visionary, the dreamer, the outsider. None of that direct that passes for mainstream film these days. This is all about the glory days of independent cinema from all over the world. Any of the hotbeds of obscure, oddball, or generally wild cinema available on DVD from the dawn of the medium to this very day. Join us as we delve deep into the cinematic netherworld here on Third Eye Cinema. Sundays at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific, on the Big Papa Online Network on Blog Talk Radio. What is At Eye Level? A reductio ad absurd and look at the headlines politics to pop culture, from the corporate to the individual. Every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern, we take a not-so-serious look at the serious issues of the day. Whether it's politics, economics, social issues, music, or old movies and TV shows, we discuss everything the corporate media overlooks while making you laugh at the absurdity of it all. 
Hell, you've got to have a sense of humor about life. Just look at the headlines. So join me, Matt G. And me, Doc Savage. Every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern as we navigate the sea of trolls, talking points, and trickery. We try to figure out a way to be there when tomorrow comes. At eye level, bringing more to you. Only on the Big Papa Network, on Blog Talk Radio. Tuesday nights at 6.30 Eastern for an exploration of the many roads and methods which promise to lead us to the ultimate answer, a higher purpose, the meaning of life. I'm just like a lot of you, a middle-aged mom with piles of laundry and a meditation practice. I've been down many roads to get where I am today, and my journey is far from finished. But I'd like to share my experience and hard-earned wisdom with you. So what is it about women and spirituality? It seems like we're always the first to try out something new. Christianity was spread in large part by wealthy women. And where would Uncle Al be without his scarlet women? Who is by and far the largest audience of new age alternative spirituality? What is it about us that always has us seeking? And why does it always seem that men tend to take over what we discover? Join us for a dialogue between two long-lost friends representing both the yin and yang aspects of the whole, each of whom have traveled multifarious paths all across the spectrum of spirituality, the dark side and the light, from the organized to the out of the way. This show is for all those frustrated in their quest who've been through various stops on the spectrum of spirituality and found them ultimately unfulfilling. Join us for some hard-earned lessons and thoughts on potential new directions and possible value in what inevitably fails in organized practice, but which may have some merit to the solo practitioner and fellow seekers of truth in this journey towards life. Moving towards life. Lessons in life and spirituality from unconventional seeker. Bringing more to you only here on the Big Papa Online Network. On Blog Talk Radio. Thursday night at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. Join us for Weird Scenes Inside the Gold Mine, your essential guide to all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment. Drop in for a spell with Doc Savage, Lois Paul, myself. Discuss the beloved, the hated, the weird, and the wonderful world of cult films, music, television, and more. We'll be covering classic films, shows, musicians, and literature of the past, with an eye towards what new visions may still arise from the soullessly derivative mire of our modern age. Tune in turn on and take a step outside the mainstream as we dig deep into the rich vein of cult cinema, music, and television right here on Weird Seats Inside the Gold Mine. Only here on the Big Papa Online Network on Blog Talk Radio. Well, hello again. <laughs> it's funny after all these years. I know, I said this often. Yeah. That damn Skype doom ding dong dong dong. <laughs> Can't they come up with Something else? Yeah. yeah, I mean, come on. Well, now it's like a trademark or whatever. Yeah, I love that. I did. I used to do a lot of surveys because they pay you, you know, like 50 bucks or something just to sit there and bullshit with them for a half an hour, an hour. And I did one that was basically on comics or, you know, what do you think about comics? Before they started making the movies, it was like the early 2000s. Mm. Or they just made a couple, like for Fox, like Spider-Man or whatever, maybe Blade. And it was like a Marvel Comics group there hiding behind the mirror. And then asking you all these questions and whatever, showing you an ad, see what you think. They asked what we thought about the covers, because they were doing this fucking thing at the time. They may still be doing it. 
when I grew up, and you probably remember this too, they used to have stuff happening on covers. There's all kinds of action, and they'd have like dialogue going on, like, oh, I'm going to get you, Spider-Man, and then I'll kill your Aunt May too. And then it shows like they're dangling from a thread or something, and Spider-Man's like, oh no, what am I going to do? And this kind of shit would get you into it, make you buy the comic. They stopped doing this for some asinine reason in the late 80s, early 90s, late 90s. I don't know what the hell. Because I wasn't reading it for like 20 years in between there, 15 years. And they started putting this dumb shit. Like they always put like Spider-Man's face on the cover, and that was it. Every single issue. Or they put the symbol. Like, you know, you had a Superman. It would be like an S there. But, you know, this is Marvel, so it's like Spider-Man or whatever. Captain America. They put the shield there. And every single issue, I'm like, how the fuck do you know whether this is issue 346 or 525 or number two? This is always the same goddamn four covers over and over again. And they call it iconic. And like, what do you prefer? Do you like the iconic covers? I'm like, this is shit. You guys are terrible. There's, there's no way that anybody is going to recognize one from the next. Why would I buy this issue when I think I have it already? Because you did the same thing for the last 25. You know, there's no way to differentiate. Well, I was the only guy that felt that way. Everybody else, I guess, you know, because I was like the aging part of the group. Like, okay, you're like pushing in your early 30s or late 20s, whatever the hell. And these other guys were all like 16 and 20. And like, okay, well, we don't really give a shit what you say because these other guys all like the iconic covers. I'm like, wow. And they're like, oh, yeah, what kind of music you guys listen to? And me and one other kid were like, oh, yeah, we were into punk rock at the time because, you know, that was where I was going back to then. Uh, especially with that all that millennial pop punk that was going on. I was like, okay, so I dug back into the old shit again. I'm, I'm playing with the cramps. I was playing the killer Barbies. You know, social distortion was still a thing. Bad religion made a comeback, and they became bigger. So that was around that time. So you figure, okay, well, they figure that, you know, people know what's going on. They got a little vibe. Nah, they just kept doing it. They thought it was great. Because, oh, yeah, we got validation because these iconic covers. And ever since then, I, every time I hear the people say, iconic, I laugh. I'm like, Everything's fucking iconic to you, goddamn yuppie zennials, whatever the hell you are. It's all bullshit. So, yeah, <laughs> that's what that is. That was an iconic thing. Like, oh, we've got the iconic Skype logo. Do, 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 do. So they're going to keep it forever, no matter what you say. <laughs> <laughs> Another aside for you. So anyway, hello. Hello. How you doing today? All right, so far, so good. Yeah, I was just a few minutes late because I... Uh... This audio setup I had going here with the mic stand to the left and, you know, really not good for sitting and always moving stuff away. And I'm like, I can't deal with this anymore. (laughs) So I uh, tried a different setup. So as soon as I signed off for work, so let me try this and hopefully this will work. Um, Yeah, sounds fine so far. Yeah, the only, uh, it's, this is a, made for desks desktops i'm using a different stand it's got a very heavy base it'll say about 25 pounds and it's got like a weighted boom on the end right so uh trying this it takes up space but more toward the right so i can see the uh, other monitor so uh what else selection day right yeah oh god yeah i'm a little terrified of this nonsense yeah it just look the reality is there won't be a blue wave yeah because I got to give those people credit, the ones we don't like. Because they're champion bullshitters? No, they know how to galvanize people. Yeah. I mean, you know I dislike them immensely, but they know how to galvanize people. They know how to get people all riled up, and yep. they generally are very good at that. And What they're good at is causing a problem, watching the other guy try to clean it up, and then blaming them for not cleaning it up, and then pointing the finger saying, look, it's their fault. They didn't do nothing. They made it worse. Uh... Yeah, we know, we know all this, but the, the fact of the the sad fact of the matter is, the Democrats don't know how to do that. They don't understand messaging. It's ridiculous. They don't right. They don't understand it. 
You don't understand how important it is. And they tried to do this stupid ass thing where it's like, oh look, the other side just always plays the same thing over and over these talking points. So we'll do that. And right. every single ad I've seen from everybody is just hammering home about the abortion thing. Yeah, that's great. I know it galvanized people, but that's just one wedge issue. And it's like every time they come after you, look, oh, crime this, crime that. Oh, look, inflation this, inflation that. Even though they caused it and it's fucking corporate profits are like 54% of everything we pay. Right. It's like, you know, so no problem there. Let's just keep deregulating those fuckwads. One thing after another. And they don't answer it. They just kind of leave it be. And they're just going, oh, yeah, well, what about abortion? Yeah, that's nice. But why don't you answer these things? You've already got the answers. We know that they're causing it. We know that you're trying to put through answers and regulations and trying to deal with all those freaking corporations, trying to deal with getting crime fixed up without being like a freaking totalitarian state like they're trying to do. We know that they're going after, they already planned on going after Medicare and Social Security, so a lot of people are going to be screwed, not just now, but in the future. I mean, somebody actually said, please vote Democrat because I don't want my goddamn mother-in-law moving in with me because, you know, if your Social Security's cut, how are they going to live? You know, you've got a lot of major problems people don't think about, and yet, instead of answering any of this, they just sit there and go, oh, well, we should do the one issue about abortion because that's winning for us. No! <laughs> and, you know, Social Security gets cut, well, or killed. We're going to suffer. I mean, we're, uh-huh. we're, we're getting there soon. Yeah. I should, you know, it's funny. Uh, I run into the same. <laughs> I thought he was older. He's, he's just had a hard life. The same guy at the liquor store when I get my vodka twice a week. Yeah. And don't laugh. And <laughs> I didn't until now. He's a, really ni- he's a really nice guy. But I, I always thought he was like way older. You know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Got that Carl Molden nose. I never see him drink, but uh, he's always at the liquor store, whatever. It's happening to me. I mean, people I went to school with, I'm like, holy shit, how old are you, man? What happened? <laughs> yeah, and then I find out we're the same age. Yeah, and exactly. Him, hey, how, you know, he's like, oh, I got this problem. I, I, he talks like that. I got that problem. So I'm, he even sounds older. <laughs> and he's, oh, I'm 62. I'm like, fuck. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still blessed with looking not too unlike I looked 10 years ago. Yeah, same here. Yeah, thank goodness. Um, <laughs> Hell, if it wasn't for the extra weight, you'd think I was still the same I was about 15 or 20 years ago. So, yeah, God well, bless genetics. <laughs> that's all I can say. Well, yeah. And not living too hard. You're not living too too hard, but at the same time, I guess you're getting around, but, you know, you're not, I mean, well. <laughs> you know, there's that. No matter how much you try to do, I, I'm interested to see, because, wow, it's been really warm the mm-hmm. past couple of weeks, and. Getting into, you know, I kind of dread going to Manhattan to go to work, and I did it twice last week. Yeah. <laughs> Came home, and I was sweating. Because mm-hmm. in the morning, it's chilly. But in the evening, it was like 67 degrees, you know, but it's, now it's going to change, finally. It's crazy. It's like summertime, because uh, I'm, like, changing my pants, like, every couple of days. I'm like, what the hell is this? Because you know, I'm sweating everything up, you know, going out there for walks every morning or whatever. Uh, walking in the garden, which we just had to close up now. You know, it's like, geez, this isn't like November weather. <laughs> You're lucky this is September weather. It's more like, you know, August, June, July. You know, uh, maybe even May, but, you know, not November. Uh, so uh, now it's finally going to turn colder. So, uh, Glad about that. Yeah, so I'm, I'm hoping for a mild winter, though. I mean, I hate... Well, I hate dealing with the damn snow. I love it. I'd love to see it around Christmas time and all that, but I don't want to, like, dig myself out of it. I don't want my tires spinning on the roads, you know, that kind of shit. Just don't don't give me those twenty degree weather. Give me something that's like you know, like this. Like right right now, it's like yeah, forties. Yeah. I'll even deal with thirties. The hell with it. But you know, below that's like eh, it's a little much. Well, then you get the nights in the early mornings. So like, yeah. Mm. So, 
<laughs> you know, I'll deal with that over the heat because the heat just doesn't belong right now. It's the wrong time of year for it. No, it is. It is. And uh, yeah, so next week, 40s, and then it's a bounce back up to the 50s. So, Gee. but if that's what we got to deal with, it's all right. Yeah. Uh, I'm more concerned about the immediate problem here of tonight. And it, tonight doesn't even mean anything. It's like I'm pointedly avoiding the news. I don't want to see any politics shows lately. I'm not going to watch them constantly. Like, just stay away from the shit until I don't even know when. You know, two days later, three days later, we're going to know what the final friggin' votes are? I don't know. <laughs> All this crap that they do. States are so dumb. Like, oh, we won't count any early votes until the day. Yeah, okay, so then we got to wait like a week until you're done counting? Is anybody running against the governor of New York? Yeah, this asshole Lee Zeldin. He's a friggin' Nazi. And he's doing well, apparently. And people really seem to like them. Even uh, freaking porn stars that I like. You know, there's a few of them, not like you, but I have a couple people like, hey, you know, I used to like this guy. I leave him on or her on. And I'll see uh, this comment like, oh, yeah, I'm voting for Lee Zeldin because, like, his wife is hot. I'm like, what, are you fucking crazy? There's a goddamn Nazi. That Amy Hochul, I, you know, she went after, what's, uh, what's his name, Cuomo. Cuomo, yeah. And then, you know... Well, she didn't have a lot to do with him because she was more, like, upstate while he was, you know, here in the city. So it was safe in terms of not getting too touched by his tarnished legacy. And you know, I don't think she's done terribly, but we've got this whole fucking problem ever since COVID of all these people going nuts in the street and just attacking people with hammers. And now because of the Republicans, people are getting easy access to guns. And, oh, you can only carry your gun here, but you can't carry it there. And they try to take that away. So you walk into a goddamn store and everybody's packing heat. Like, this doesn't work. This is not fucking rural texas you know it doesn't work that way when you got crowded people because crowded people get frustrated and a lot of them are a little off their heads a lot of people are poor what do you think is going to happen they know this because they want to have everybody like fucked up and calling for a military state so they can just take over and there you go zig heil but you know this doesn't work for normal people people aren't fucking nazis <laughs> yeah and trump's biggest threat is desantis Mm-hmm. Who's also an asshole. He's just kind of fey. <laughs> He's also an asshole. His little sissy voice, and you know, dresses like Nancy Sinatra. But then he's got, like, those dumb fucking stunts, like, oh, yeah, let's ship all our immigrants to New York, because they love them, they'll learn, they can take care of them. Like, Fuck you. It's all about, like, punking the libs or some shit. Like, you know, we're going to turn everybody into us, because, you know, we're going to make things tough on you. We'll show you how it is. Yeah, fuck you. Stick up your ass. <laughs> Damn no, I hate the guy, too, but uh, if he prevents Trump, you know, at least... <laughs> I don't know. They're all, all these MAGA pricks. It, it, Trump's not even a threat anymore. He's just like a fool. He keeps coming, oh, yeah, I'm going to run again. Yeah, sure, right. Well, that'll go well. You know what he's going to run if he does? Because I don't think he really wants to. He's trying to avoid all these criminal prosecutions, and that's why he's been, like, going behind these people whenever they seem like they're leading or he gets his MAGA fucks out there running for office, like Carrie Lake or whatever. Yeah. Like, oh, yeah, because then they can stop the trials against him or flip it or you know overturn it with the appellate courts or whatever kind of shit that's all it's about it's about me not going to prison and my money not getting taken away that's all he cares about so and why is that still going on why is that yeah uh, some like fake spam call no but i'm thinking like why is this trump thing still going on with the courts the courts are always so slow yeah and first off you know, we had the whole thing where they were waiting, you know, Merrick Garland sitting there waiting for the, the January 6th machines, waiting for them to get all their findings in to see what might work and what doesn't work. He's a very careful guy. He wants to make sure that you know, he doesn't fuck this case up. Yeah. So he's moving slowly, but he's finally moving. And then other states like New York and Georgia, they're moving as well. But, you know, the courts run slow. I mean, 
I even had a damn, what was that, a parking ticket or some shit? Oh, it wasn't parking ticket. It was some dumb thing like that. Like, I got pulled over or whatever. And the court case kept getting delayed. So they'd come to the time of the day, and they'd say, oh, yeah, well, now it's like three months ahead or, you know, next year. So eventually it wound up being a full year later before I went to court over something, you know, simple and dumb like this. Challenging a parking ticket or some dumb violation of points or whatever. It was nothing, really. It was just, like, minor shit. But it still took a year to get done. And this is like a local type of thing, so I can only picture when you got like a whole statewide or federal thing, how many things, court cases they got on the docket. So yeah, everything runs really slow, and nobody, rightly so, especially when you're doing this high stakes crap like these elections, because everybody's such a moron out there they'll vote these assholes in again. It becomes like you're sitting there waiting on tenterhooks, like, uh, are you getting moving on us yet? Come on, you got to do this quick. But you know, slow and steady sometimes wins the race, and that's what the way the courts tend to work. So I think that's what's going on. But it's frustrating as shit. It's so well, frustrating. I, yeah, I know. Uh, remember February last year, I put out, uh, I think I did, who knew, mm-hmm. trash around 2 o'clock. And I got a thing. I'm like, I'm not the landlord. You know, and I threw it away, but there was another one. I said, oh, jeez. They rescheduled that so many times. And th- no, it was two years ago. And then because of COVID, it became virtual, and they rescheduled that. That's what happens. That's exactly what happened to me. And like I said, if it's something small like that, picture something big. And people like that. Yeah, and, and I pled not guilty. I'm like, what's the purpose of working law? What's the purpose of pleading not guilty if the guy says, well, it is kind of early. I'm like, duh. Yo. Listen, I had a period. The trash period. got put out. So you'll be happy for that. Because now, yo, I even told the judge signs on. You don't even see him. They show you, like, the insignia. Mm-hmm. So why are we doing this via Zoom? Why don't you just call me? Yeah. Well, right? you know, I had something years ago. I used to go in the city all the time. I would constantly, because you know how expensive it is to park and shit. And I was just going in and out of Kim's and hanging around St. Mark's and whatever the hell else. So, anyway, all kind of shit. That was my thing at the time. But I was constantly getting landed with these fucking tickets, because these meter mans are crazy over there. Because every place is like, oh, yeah, we got to take you for this, take you for that, take you for this. There's nowhere to park. There's nothing to do. So, finally, you just do this stuff, and you get nailed with it, and I finally deal with it. Then it stopped, because around, first of all, I met my wife, but then that whole nonsense with 9-11 happened. I'm like, I'm not going to a damn city. This is crazy. Because I know the security was going to be up. I, I'm terrified about something like that happening again. I know that stuff is still floating around in the air, and it turned out it gave those people mesothelioma years later. It helped out. You know, it was bad news. So I just stayed the hell out of Manhattan for, like, two years, three years. I, I went in, like, once, with, and that was it, with a friend. During that period, when I was no longer going to the city at all, all of a sudden I get a ticket for running a red light, and it was like a week ago from when I got this thing. I'm like, you're fucking crazy. I haven't been in there at all. And it's like, you have no proof about this. You know, show me a picture. Show me something. Oh, yeah, we, we clocked your license plate. Well, what kind of car was it? What kind of car do you have? They asked. So I told him, like, oh, yeah, that's what it was. No, it fucking wasn't. There is no way in hell. I'm not in an alternate universe where somebody else is taking my car and going into the city and running <laughs> red lights. Nonetheless... Even though we went back and forth and this went on for like months, like you say, with the course they kept you rescheduled or whatever, they still said, even though I pled not guilty, there's no, there's no reality to this. I was, I think I was on the job at the time, so I was like, you know, I'm working my job everywhere I was. There's no fucking way. Ah, well, you know, it's you, so pay it. Like, are you crazy? And I had to pay a court fee on top of everything else. So I paid for some other asshole to run a red light in the city when I wasn't even in the city for like two years or three years. So, well, yeah. yeah. They, they totally negate what not guilty means. Yeah, so what's the point of it? Exactly, like you said. That's why I brought that story up. Yeah, what's the point of it? Y'all? Yeah. Uh, all right, you want to test this and then we'll get rolling? Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> 